Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Wow, what an inspirational guy, Mr Hugh Bennett, swimmer of the English Channel uh, and just an all-round G from his tours with the British military to undergoing life-changing surgery and how he turned his life around um, from that devastating impact to becoming on to swim the English Channel, which is a phenomenal task in itself. So let's dive in, enjoy, let's go. Mr. Hugh Bennett. Hello, mate. How you doing, Joe? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege to have you on, brother, and I can't wait to dive into this. So before we start, nothing great is easy. Yes, in famous words. Tell the people what you've done on the 27th of August, 2019. So uh, after a, a long time waiting to do it, I, uh, I swam the English Channel. You are, you are the swimmer of the English Channel. Yep. Mate, there's not a lot of people that can say they've done that. No, there's not a lot of people that can say they do it. And um, it's still one of, regarded as one of the, um, the Everest of the swims, they call it. I mean, there's lots of channels, if you like. I think there's seven throughout the world. But yeah, that's the one everyone wants to crack. And uh, yeah, I've done it. How long did it take you? 17 hours, 53 minutes, which was not the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking so seven minutes shy of 18 hours. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a long old day. You're not allowed to touch the boat, is that right? You don't touch the boat. You, um, you don't have any um, like physical contact with your crew. You have a boat that comes alongside you like as a safety boat and obviously to guide you. But uh, yeah, the crew are there um, and they reach out to feed you with all different systems of feeding. But mine was literally uh, on, on a string. It was a big like syringe, plastic syringe with a feeding. But yeah, that's how you... They feed you, but you don't you don't get touched at all at any moment. What what was in the syringe? So it's a it's a mix actually, which took me a little while. It's quite an interesting question. That to get into the feed, um, it's like a CMP powder, like a pure um, energy, like glucose, really. And there's different different ones you can get, but the one they use predominantly for swimming is quite a nice, easy one on your gut. Yeah. Um, but I had um, an electrolyte mix in the other one, and then most of the time just water. Really, is what I actually craved the most and wanted yeah. so you get fed every uh, every hour or every hour and 45 or whatever you practice in your swim but predominantly it's every hour that's what you aim for and are you actually do you, are you treading water when you're taking the food yeah. so you tread water you um you stretch out which is obviously a killer because the current further in as you get across um obviously moves in all different ways and where you can't hold on to anything that's where most people blow their legs out mm. um so yeah treading water is one of the big drills that you do um, well, I certainly did anyway. My uncle, who is actually a channel swimmer himself, who was my inspiration, Jerry, um, we practiced that a lot. That was a big part of the training to get that muscle group for kicking whilst uh, waiting to feed. So, nearly 18 hours of swimming. What, nearly 18 hours of swimming, what, yeah. What was the total distance? Um, the total distance. Is a, do you know what? Right? I still haven't had the actual official paperwork back because you get tracked. Hmm. Um, the uh, CSA, the Channel Swim Association, do that, and then there's tech, obviously the tracker on the boat. The total distance—I don't actually know—but 21 miles is, is the is as the crow flies. But with the currents and stuff like that, and obviously the amount of time I was in the water, it, it was it was a lot more than that. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. What, what was what was like a perfect day sort of planned swim? What what would that hours be roughly? I know every day is sort of different. So, and average, and bear in mind, Jay, I'm, I'm not a swimmer. So I, I was new to this. I could, I could obviously swim before, but I was no way near a swimmer. So to get ready for it, I actually swam a year early, mm. um, 
thank God, obviously the year we just had. But the um, yeah, a perfect day would be, you know, average is about 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours swim. And they're yes. good swimmers, you know, they're solid swimmers. So to get across. But I actually had perfect conditions when we rocked up. You know, you couldn't write for a better, you know, in my head, I'd already swum it. Um, driving down there, like I drove there with the, with the guys in the car and then the, some of the other guys, like Shawnee, you know, Shawnee. Yeah. He was there, he was with us. Um, we, yeah, rocked up. It was glorious. Do you know what I mean? Everything was just going right. It was actually still dark at the time. There was like a little hotel just up the way we got up there. Nothing was open. We couldn't even get a tub, cup of tea or coffee or anything. We were just sitting there chatting. And then the sun come up, mate, and we um, we rocked up to the bit, met the crew, um, Harry and Fred. They're a father and son team. We've been doing it for a, a good few years. Mm. They take loads of people across on a boat called the Masterpiece. And um, as we were like loaded up the boat, you get all the gear out of the car, you go over there. In my head, I was just thinking, this is just beautiful. Like, you honestly, like, it, you know, especially where I was, we were in folks, and the sun was coming up. It was just magical. The water was calm. But I also know what the water could be doing around the corner once you actually get out of the safety of the harbour. Yeah. But it didn't. It got better. It got better and better. It was like a mill pond. It was just no waves. So I was thinking, this is incredible. And actually, I remember tapping Harry and saying, Harry, look, he's one of the crew. Be honest. And he said, um, sure, we get two days a year like this. And this is one of them. Which I thought was a pretty good thing to say to someone who's just about to swim the channel. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, nice one, Harry. Good man. Um, yeah. And then you just, you just gently cruise out. And then um, you... You uh, what's the word? You go broadside really to the to the white cliffs. So you sort of rocket. You you sail out, turn, and then I went from. There's two places you start from: Shakespeare Beach and Samphire Ho. Uh, Shakespeare Beach is just a bit further around. That's the famous one. I think that's where Captain Webb actually went from himself. Um, but I went from Samphire Ho. So the boat the boat sort of pull, rocks up, pulls up. You jump in, swim about 400 yards to the beach, which was the longest. 400 yards I've ever done in my life. <laughs> uh, and there was another crew to the left of me. A lady was starting. Um, she'd already got to the beach before me. And then you, you took your about turn on the beach. And when you put both hands up in the air, that signals the start and the the, 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 uh, the boat blasts the horn and you're off. Mm. Yeah. What, what time did you start? Uh, I think we, we left, like, once you actually got in, it was probably about half six, 6.45 around that time. Mm -hmm. To be honest, mate, that was all a bit of a blur. It started slowing down. And obviously, you know, my background in the military, is it was pretty similar to that. Like, you know, when things were about to happen, you sort of start taking everything in. I was looking at the minute details, like, right, my goggles, they're set, my hat. Mm -hmm. I know this is, it's all a drill. Yeah. Love it. Like, because you've only got literally your, your pants on. I had the budgie smugglers. You're not allowed to wear shorts or any, like, of the, um, you know, the longer ones that the guys can wear. It's literally, you have to have them on, goggles. I think the only thing I had that was a bit... Um, abnormal was the nose pig that was the only thing that's been introduced that you're allowed to have so right. um am i talking a bit fast i'm very conscious that my mother's irish <laughs> talking, we uh we get going we've got a little code so we need a slow down word nah it's all good it's all yeah. good mate. it's all good um, and i'm glad you touched on captain webb because um for those that don't know and please correct me if i'm wrong hugh because um i'm only picking this up from reading ross edgley's book yeah but this was the guy that covered himself in duck fat Duck fat. And drunk whiskey to stay warm. Brandy. Brandy, okay. Yeah, made a sausage sandwich. <laughs> That's how he got across. What legends are made of, eh? Sausage. I know, mate, yeah, what a dude. But he had a couple of failed attempts as well, didn't he? So I think the, there was a gentleman before him. So Captain Webb's actually an interesting character. He, um, he He's a bit of a dude himself. He, he His claim to fame before the channel was he was on a cruise liner. So you can imagine like that back in the day when, you know, not when they were just invented, but they were certainly just in their prime, probably like the old steam going. You can picture the scene, can't you? Like a bit of a Titanic-ish sort of 
yeah. you know, gentlemen, ladies and all that. And he, he, like I say, he was a bit of a dude. Someone fell in and he he jumped over and caught him in the wash. He got in there. He was only a boy. So right. um, he got he got awarded for that and, and recognition in the swimming, uh, not in the fraternity of swimming then, but, you know, he, he was known as a strong swimmer. And, um, yeah, that really done him like good deeds, you know, he, that, that stuck with him. Uh, and then there was a gentleman that tried to get across. I can't remember his name. And he failed. And that was quite in the papers, you know, like the public back then. And then, yeah, Webb had a go. And he failed the first attempt. And then he'd done it again a bit later on because the tides, you see, obviously they understood the tides, you know, as, as sailors would and things like that, people. But he 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 mastered the tide. He waited and to, to, to go in August and got across. Obviously, the rowboat next to him. Can you imagine the lads rowing that? <laughs> it took him like 21 hours and something. So, yeah, it's incredible. Wasn't it? Um... And he done it breaststroke. Yeah, I was going to say that because yeah, it was a genuinely thing to do, wasn't it, to swim breaststroke? Oh, yeah, it's the proper thing, yeah. <laughs> proper old boy. Well proper old boy, yeah. I think you only do front crawl if you was probably on Alcatraz trying to get away from the pressure <laughs> a bit quicker. So, look, we're, we're going to come back to the swim because that is just an epic, epic, epic challenge that you've completed. And um, I tip my hat off to you. It's this, this, Thank you. It's a wonderful thing to hear and to see someone accomplish such a big thing. But you have had some twists and turns before you got to that point. And you've had some real decent and uh, very wide, broad set of experiences. So why don't you tell the people, introduce yourself, give us an intro of, um, of yeah, where you come from and how you got to that day before you started swimming the channel. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so my name's Hugh. I'm from Brentwood. I'm 36. Um, I suppose my fondest memory is probably being eight or nine as a kid growing up. Um, yeah, happy. Uh, lived in a great street, not far from Brentwood Station. So we had um, I had a bit of town around me, but predominantly we had big woods behind me. I don't know if you're familiar with Warley, Warley Woods. Yeah. We had the hospital there, and I mean that's got history. I've always been interested in history. So um, you know, throughout the throughout the ages, that said, loads of soldiers, and it used to be a big garrison town. So that was probably where my sparking for the military come from. But to me, my street was like my domain. It was like my Himalayas. You know, I knew everything down there. I knew I could be in one part of the woods one minute and. You know, over there catching rabbits, literally staying out. Six weeks holidays, my mum wouldn't see me. I'd be gone. Uh, I knew it. I knew every inch of it, every inch of the woods. Um, yeah, very fond memories growing up there. And yeah, like I say, I've always wanted to be in the military. So um, I had two choices, which was the Household Cavalry Regiment, which you'll be familiar with, which is a troop in the colour. And you'll see the guys on the horses. Yeah. They get trooped round. Then you've got the foot guards, guys with the big bear skins, like yep. smart. And Royal Marines. So um, as a kid, I didn't know which one I wanted to join, but I was very fond of, uh, very fond of both of them. And um, yeah, didn't really enjoy school. School wasn't for me, if I'm honest. I had a good, good junior school, but senior school was just not a bit of me. As far as I'm concerned, they were just stopping me getting in the army, yeah. um, and I wanted to get out of there asap. So um, where did that drive come from? Like you said, you knew you wanted to be in the military, but what? Where did that? Where did it come from? Do you know what? It, when I spoke to my mum about it, actually, you know, obviously coming onto the podcast, she said since I was tiny, literally two years old, it was just army, 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 or anything military. Mm. Um, and I, I think I held on to that because, yeah, obviously eight and nine, I was, I was very happy. But when my, when I was ten, my mum and dad split up, and right. um, at the time it obviously affected me, but I didn't really know it did. But um, the military thing sort of gave me something to focus on, so I was actually obsessed. Is the word I reckon. But so the drive was always there. I didn't know. I didn't know any different. If that makes sense, like I wanted it bad. Um, yeah, and enough to just think about it all the time. And if 
it sounds a bit rude now, but if you didn't want to be anything to do with the military, I didn't want anything to do with you. I remember thinking that as a young kid. So anyone around me, like, um, you know, my mum's friends or parents we met or the rugby club and that crowd, you know, if, if there was any inkling one of them was in the military or had anything to do with it, then I'd latch onto them big time. Mm. Um, like a guy that sticks out in particular is a, a gentleman called Martin Edwards. He's, um, he's an ex-war Marine and Special Forces, and he was a big part of my early days. Uh, he's a very interesting character. Um, you know, I, I owe that man a lot. Uh, and he sort of saw the kindled spirit in me and was very kind to me growing up. Uh, yeah. In fact, he's got a book. That's, that's, he's, he's a good guy called Ultimate Survivor. Right. Uh, that'd be worth looking at. Yeah, he's, he's very good. And that would give you a you know, broader um, idea of sort of the calibre of the man. Um, so like I say, big characters like him in my life. Because I've, I've grown up watching programs and like when you see the Royal Marines on, they traditionally have a, a, a tash. Some of the instructors there, like the short, sharp, you know what I mean? Boxed off geezers. They just look <laughs> awesome, don't they? That sort of thing. And then all of a sudden I go to a barbecue and I've got one in front of me. And his name's Martin and he's really nice. And he's quiet. And I was like, I'll fucking hit the jackpot here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, I was very fond of him, and he was—he's fair, you know. That's what I liked about it from the off. I think the discipline is what I craved. Although some people probably say, contrary to popular belief, I was a little shit, but that's probably because they didn't give me what I needed from them. And that sounds—that um, sounds like I'm being uh, dismissive, but I'm not. I, from an early age, I was very, very aware that in my mind, the only thing adults had over you was um, knowledge. And if I could get knowledge, then that would empower me. So my route was the army. Because if you hear people talking, most of them didn't know what they were doing as adults. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing when you find your passion. Because some people spend their whole life and don't find it. Oh, and yeah. For you to find that at a very young age, yep. to be obsessed to the point that no matter what you've done, yep. nothing was going to get in the way of your goal of getting into the military. Yeah. That's a great thing to have. Oh, mate, listen, I, I'm, I'm blessed for that because, like I say, you know, I, I, I don't think I was a little shit. I just, I just didn't like what was around me. Like I say, if it wasn't military, I did not want to know. And it, it, when you're a kid growing up and you hear people saying this and saying that, like adults always forget. It used to amaze me at barbecues. They think they have a beer and their voice goes up. Obviously, <laughs> you hear what people say. And um, now I'm older, um, you know, and I'm, I'm doing fantastically. Like, you know, I've got my, my fiancé, the kids, and everything's going well. And, you know, you get on with life, don't you? There's ups and downs. But the yeah. military has given me that background. And then you look around at the people that I used to hear say, you know, this Hughes, this Hughes, that. And, uh, yeah, I just smile to myself and think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turned out nice for me, mate, didn't it? So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a funny one. Do you know what I mean? And that's not me being a flash. I just think, oh, if you'd have just changed that attitude from being negative to a positive, like what that Martin would give me, you know, mm -hmm. Mr. Edwards, I just think, um, yeah, you'd, you'd be a lot further on in life if you, if you actually analyse yourself. And I think that's what I've done very early on. Like I said, I had that. I just had this thing inside me that I will be all right. Um, yeah. And I harnessed it. So what age did you join? I joined. I tried to join when I was 16. Mm. I wanted to get in there quick. Because um, like I said, I didn't, do, I didn't really, I say do too well at school. I, I could have done a lot better at school, but I didn't focus on it. Um, so I had a little job in between um, when I was playing rugby, doing landscaping with a guy called Terry. And um, he was great for me. Very, very tough man. Mm. Um taught me like right from wrong really if you know what I mean like he sorted me out a very short sharp shot so I had the best of both worlds like you know I could be I could do what I want to be a young lad but at the same time he would he would make me toe the line so I learned a lot from him um I tried to join when I was 16 and they failed me for asthma and that come around from you know the little blue and gray ventolin things the twist pumps when I was in the army cadets some summer camp I went to in Pembrokeshire in Wales 
Mm. Um, I didn't have any capsules. So my mum got some from the um, the doctors and that went on my record. So it looked like I'd used the pump. I hadn't. Yeah. So um, anyway, they stick in the bottom of my kit bag. I didn't even bother using them. So to answer your question, mate, yeah, um, I had to wait a, f- a fair bit, but I'm pleased I did because mm. um, I got in when I was 18. Yeah. So I had a bit of life experience in between because I think in some of the younger lads um, and women join at a younger age, you sort of become a little bit, I was army barmy, but you become a little bit, you don't know the difference. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it stood me in good stead not to join, I think. I think that was a blessing in disguise because I actually got a little taste of what was outside and it just made me want to go in even more. Yeah. And that's not to be rude to anyone. It was just, this is all I want to do. So I got fitter, got stronger, carried on playing rugby, worked with Terry, you know, grafting, got strong, got like man strong, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah got a few digs. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, joined when I was 18 um, and I joined the Household Cavalry Regiment. So I didn't go down the Royal Marine route. I joined the Household Cavalry, uh, the Blues and Royals. Mm-hmm. And that was just purely from just obviously seeing them on the treatment of the colour. Um, I like the discipline, the, the look of it. They're smart, handsome men. Um, so I went to the careers office in Chelmsford. And uh, there's two buttons. You get Army and Navy. And Army's above the Navy. Uh, not not for any particular reason. I've got to be careful what I say there because obviously people might say the history <laughs> side of it and what year and all this. But um, I've got a lot of respect for the Navy, so I know them boys have been around a long time. But um, we'll yeah, just say went... alphabetical. Yeah, alphabetical. That's it. Yeah, I'll go for that. But then they'd say the army wouldn't work that out anyway. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So I put my finger, hovered over the button, just as I was about to do it. I just remember glancing up at the door, and I just thought, "Whoa, look at this geezer. He looks like smart. You know, he just looked well turned out. He had combat on." can't remember his name but he was an engineer sergeant from engineers that's come down to do recruiting hmm. and um i would later find out what happens is they sort of bid for you if they if they like you and you're in there they try and get you into their regiment yeah uh, but obviously i didn't know that at the time so eh, push the army buzzer he swung it open how can i help you young man and i'm like well, i was like my mouth just opened i was like whoa <laughs> do you know what i mean i got wafted his aftershave as well I thought, look at this geezer he's just everything's immaculate on his <laughs> buttons are in line he's got his crisp I, oh mate, you just looked amazing. Um, he said, "Come in." I said, uh, "I'd like to join the army." And um, he said, "Good, you've, made, you've done you've done the right thing by pushing the uh, the army button." Come in. So he sat me down. I've got a cup of water in my own little plastic cups, you know, from the thing. I remember it all, mate. I was just sitting there thinking, "Oh my god, this is amazing." And he come over, sat down with a book, opened it up, and said, "Right, what are you thinking? Do you understand or know what you want to do? Have you got any inklings? Um, have you got any brothers or sisters that are in? Was your dad in?" I said, yeah, I'm going to join the Blues and Royals Household Cavalry Regiment. Uh, and he went, oh, okay, why is that? And then I just explained to him, look, I like what they do. Um, I have done a bit of reading up on them, uh, and I think that role would suit me. He said, okay, young man, sit there. And then, yeah, just went from there, really, you fill in the forms and chat. And it's quite a long process to get in. I say long. It's, you know, it's a few months. Hmm. Yeah. So can you remember day one? Day one of when I rocked up to to join. To, yeah. Once I'm in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, mate, you never forget day one. Where was that? Um, yeah, so day one, after all the initial briefings and things that you do, we I got to Waterloo Station, and I remember I was wearing a wearing your suit, you got your tie on on your bag and all your kit, and we got on a train to uh, Brookwood or Brockwood in Surrey, and um, yeah, you get off and there was a minibus, and there's a corporal standing there, he comes over like you know we're all lining up our bags. I just remember thinking, keep your mouth shut and your ears open, like from the off. I was just looking at these geezers cutting about in their uniform, thinking, like, they are, this is the real deal. Like, don't fuck it up. 
Uh, but happy. I was happy to be there, man. I would have got the train at any time of night. I didn't care. I would have walked there. Like, if they said, right, leave your kit, start walking, I'd be like, yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, watching all these dudes fly about. And it's funny, like, people started milling in, you know, getting off the train. They're saying the names. People are, like, stumbling a little bit, a bit nervous looking down. I just remember them looking straight in the eye, like, yeah, I'm Hugh Bennett. I'm here to join, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, mate, nice one. Good enthusiasm. And then uh, I remember this South African guy called Van Wick. <laughs> he just come out with, uh, I've been waiting here, in his accent, I've been waiting here 20 minutes. Where do you, where have you been? And the corporal just looked at him and I just remember thinking, <laughs> sweet, I'm not going to be the, um, yeah, that's the first guy that's just offered himself up to get on the, on the bus on the way in. It's not going to be me. So I've become the grey man very, very quickly. Yeah, you, um, and then you drive into camp and it's all just getting showed around your accommodation. This is this, this is that. You know, it's and it's it's quite like that for the for the first few days, really. Probably the first week, you're still treated as a, a civilian, like you know, they break you in nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, eighteen, you're in there. When, when did it for you start to sort of start getting real now? Like you're going through lots of training, I would have thought. Yep. But at what point did you think like this? This is getting this is get, shit's getting real now. Yeah, so training for me, I mean, it's nothing like um, what you think it's going to be. So it's, it's always a bit more, dare I say, it, boring, if that makes sense. It's never, you know, you think it's going to be action, action, action. But where I spoke to people before I went in, it's, I think that's what gets people is the boredom. But it got real for me when, you know, when they ask of you, like the drill and stuff like that. It's always the mundane things. But I remember thinking, I enjoy that shit. Like, um, like the physical side was good for me. But the, I, it, when it got real was like when when they asked of you and it was up to me to give back to them, you know, like we know you can do this. This is what we want you to do. Go away and do it. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed that. And that's normally when a few guys fall off is like when it's, Oh, it's all on me now. Well, I can't, Oh, what? There's no, there's no parent to, to back you up. There's no, obviously the lads will back you up and they instill that. But the, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that bit. It was like, all right, Bennett, obviously your second name, They're like Bennett, right? you've got to do this. Blah, 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 blah. And I go off and do it and come back like a lap dog. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'll do that again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, good boy, right, do one. And then all that, you know, that starts. But, yeah, training, I, I really enjoyed training. Um, I must admit, yeah, it was hard at points. Um, the physical side, it was nothing but the, like what the para boys get up to or the infantry lads or the Royal Marines or anything like that. It was taxing at times. And obviously, it's a bit alien as well. Like, you know, you chuck a Bergen on, which is a backpack. You carry, like, large, or not large weights, but heavier weights. So you have to get used to that. But once you sort of sink in and dial into the pain and enjoy it, it's... Um, yeah, man, he's fucking buzzing. You're looking left and right and seeing your pals sweating your tits off. Do you know what I mean? And you're egging each other on. That's what I liked. That's when I've really felt cohesion for the first time. Mm. You know, you um, you start to gel as a unit and that's a powerful feeling. Like, I'll fucking do anything for you, mate. And then you start looking around and then you know who would do it back for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's very enjoyable. So how many tours did you do? So in total, when I, once I got to the regiment, I, I actually joined at a unique time, Jay. Um I passed out in 2003, and when I joined my regiment, they were just getting ready for, well, a few of the boys were already there, but predominantly uh, Iraq had just kicked off. Right. So um, the first wave had gone in, I believe it was a, a commando unit had gone in there with all the backup, the planes, you, you probably remember it on the telly, it was quite heavy duty, they'd gone in. When they went off to set out? That's right. So that's when the, 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 the statue oh, come down. It wasn't yeah. the Gulf Wars. They were before us. We were, we yeah. were kids then. But this was the first, yeah, the Iraq one. Mm-hmm. So um, we were like the second wave, if you like. So the lads have gone in, smashed it up. Like I say, the commandos bumped up the road, done the business. 
Um, and then my unit, we were there. Initially, it was a bit like peacekeeping without the... It wasn't nicey-nicey. It was still a bit hostile, but it was very much... They wanted us there initially. That was my first feeling of the first well, uh, of the first war, um, Iraq war. It was enjoyable. Like, they wanted us there in that respect of... Um, it, obviously, you're doing, you, you never let your guard down as such, but I remember thinking, God, we're making a difference here. Like, you pull into a, a village, you know, you cut across a little a little bridge that they got there, a little makeshift bridge, you rock up, the kids are coming out, you know, you've got your, you don't have your helmet on, you don't look mega aggressive, you've got all your kit ready to go and obviously you're always armed, but you're walking through, you're seeing people and through the interpreters, you, um, you're getting good feedback, like, yes, we are pleased to see you. Um, you know, we want you here. Um, and then we had a, that, so I was in A Squadron, um, and we we was in Basra. That's where we were based in Basra. So we're flying around. So you've got a bit of the town, obviously there, like the old the old town. It's actually quite nice that first bit, but obviously it's it's, it's been a bit dilapidated now, obviously with everything that's gone on there. Um, we can see remnants of when the British Army were there, you know, ages ago. We built a railway there, like, you know, loads of buildings. So it looks pretty British colonial sort of feel, you know, like dusty streets and things. And then we had some others, uh, another squadron or another part of the squadron a bit further up north in like Fallujah and places like that. They were they were getting a bit tasty up there. But certainly my first few months in Iraq were good. And then we moved to the palace, Basra Palace, which was a bit, uh, that was quite cool. Because obviously it was still relatively unbuilt up by the by the armed forces then at the moment. It was still like, you know, as if he was just driving around there. You could imagine Saddam and his motor cars going around. So we got into a room in the palace and then... In the, I don't know if you remember in the news, there was a guy called Muqtada al-Sada. He was like a bit of a mean-looking dude. Yeah. Basically, where Saddam had gone, like in any power vacuum, people were jockeying for position. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of feeling nice and walking around with our helmets off and berets on and very softly, softly, very quickly changed because he said, look, we can't have these people here doing this. Yeah. So he put a bounty out, I think. Um, anyone have a pop at a British soldier and if you get one, like you get some money, um, basically just have a go at us. So... We were in the palace and within a week we started, well, within a few days, we started getting IDF, which is uh, indirect fire mortars. They started lobbing mortars into the base. Right. So that changed the tour very, very quickly. Like the patrols become a bit more locked in. So we'd gone out from like just a roaming patrol to see the locals really to thinking we're going to go out on a fighting patrol. Um, yeah. And then it just went from bad to worse. Kicked yeah, off. The time that you'd come under sort of live fire or live Oh, yeah. Yeah, so in, in town itself, you know, it, be, it wouldn't be unheard of for a patrol to get out and get attacked right near the gate or you could push out a bit further. Yeah, yeah there were contacts. Um, not, not not to report back like it was, you know, mega, mega, but it was certainly creeping up. It was like, hang on a minute, this isn't um, this isn't what we assumed was going to happen. Mm. So, yeah, just slowly, slowly built up and built up. Can you, what was going through your head the first time you was involved in a situation or scenario like that? Do you know what, mate? The first time I actually got into a contact was, um, it was, it all happened so quickly. I remember that. I know I said earlier about things slowing down, but the beautiful thing about the military is that when the training kicks in, and I know it sounds a bit cliche and you might have heard it before, but it's actually, I believe, you don't even know you're doing it. And that, I think now, now I'm out of it and been away from it for a little while, that's how you know you were well trained because everyone just done what they needed to do. Right, so we're coming out of camp. I remember exactly how it happened. Like, you do, you load up, get in the thing. Obviously, we've had our briefing well before, so we all know the crack, what's going to go on. We were literally going out. We had to drop off some other guys to another bit, get back. Lovely. Should just be a straightforward thing. Um, but actually, there were some vehicles in front of us that were returning from another op. So there was a bit of congestion sort of coming out of camp. 
and obviously the radios are going crazy and everyone's talking and we were like okay yeah we'll push on past well obviously you can't help set patterns coming in and out of a camp it's not hard for the enemy to lock on and think oh if they go that way there's only so many bloody roads do you know what i mean and we're in their back garden as such so um we didn't dive off the route, but we went a route that was probably not the best one to go. And um, I think they attacked their vehicle to our left a bit further up. And yeah, the rounds were just zipping over, mate. So we was actually doing top cover at that time. Mm. Can you believe it? In soft skin Land Rovers, which was probably not the best thing to go out of. But obviously, yeah. So you've got a bit of camo knitting flapping around you. And then um, the lads, I just remember looking at my pal thinking, oh, shit. So the, the word come over a PRR radio, which is a, a little small device that goes over your ear. Everyone's got them within the team. That was like, yeah, get down. So we got down. The boys put their foot down. We sort of cleared through that, but it was the crack, zipping over your head. Mm. And then, yeah, we pushed on, done what we needed to do and come back. So the first time I got into contact, I didn't fire back or anything like that. It, it wasn't necessary. We just sort of got out of there. But the, the boys coming back into camp sort of had a had a bit of a scrap. Mm. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. And do you remember sort of um, reflecting on that that evening or that day or are you just yeah. so... Yeah, certainly. Mate. I was reflecting on it fucking live at the time. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you squat down, look at my mate. Thinking, fucking hell, did you hear that? Yeah, looking at all you want to do is spark a fag up and have a chat. But um, yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? You sort of just think, shit, this is the real deal. But also, what I forgot to mention, at that time, we actually had a few dudes from the regiments that were the previous tour. So you do a handover takeover. Right. So I can't remember what regiment they were from, but they were well tuned in by then. You know, they'd been there three or four months. They've got a beautiful tan. And I don't mean like as if you've been laying down having an easy one, but they were weathered. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They looked lovely, mean, like, you know, nice tans. But um, the contact didn't bother them at all. They were like, yeah, mate, get used to that. You can have a bit of that going off. Um, yeah, it was nice to have them around because they sort of put us at ease. And obviously I was young. I was only 18, you know what I mean? I was yeah. like a young chap, like skinny almost like you forget how much of a boy like I look at 18 year old boys now and you just think Jesus like you wouldn't let them put the bins out would you <laughs> do you know what I mean how long was you out there for then first the first tour? tour was six months um and like it, it, it was a good tour like I cut my teeth there because the troop I was in um support troop it was called the, them boys had been tight for a little while so I was a bit of a newcomer to that troop they'd been to Canada before doing all the training for other things there was a few boys that had just got back from Bosnia previous so they were tight so I was a bit of a new face so uh, once you get soaked in with the lads, it, it becomes a proper thing. Like you are a family. Like make no make no main, uh, bones about it. You are a, a unit. So yeah, the, the six months went pretty quick, and then um, before you know it, mate, yeah, we were coming back, and there was lots of instances then, but nothing really to mention it. I mean, it was a good tour for me to cut my teeth in. You know, as, as first tours go, if, if there is such a thing as a good one, um, I learned a lot. I was around some good dudes. Um, yeah, I got back from there. And you go on a thing called R and R, which is like rest and recuperation. You must have heard of that in the, in the movies. But um, I think we had about a month. It was something something crazy. But I just remember thinking, after about four or five days of being home, I just want to be with the lads again. Mm. Um, and I think we was all in a similar similar boat. Um, yeah, that went very very quickly. And then uh, before you know it, you're back in camp. You sort of do a bit of decompression, having chats, and, and nothing was wrong at that time. You know, it was all sort of tier medals um and then we got ready for what was going on so in my regiment there's there's um a squadron b squadron c squadron d squadron but d squadron a bit unique they're attached to the 16 air assault brigade which is they we facilitate the parachute regiment so uh, you're familiar with the parachute regiment yeah yeah 
yeah, so they traditionally jump out of um, the aircraft. They don't do that so much anymore. But what they do do is they, they get on helicopters and fly in, do the business and then get out. But to, to facilitate them on the ground, they have the RCVRT tracked vehicles. And if you can imagine like a small tank, basically, that's what we drive. But it's got a punch on it so we can get out quick um, and, and help the infantry guys. Um, so D Squadron is attached to them. So when you get a whole battle group that goes away, imagine forming your company or like a premiership football club, yeah? You'd be the boss. You set it out. You go, right, I've got the paras. They're going to go out and do that. And then they've got this. Then you have to get your medical guys and logistics. You know, it's a whole big operation. Yeah. So they're attached to them. So that tour was actually a bit more kinetic. Well, when I say a bit more, it was, it was fucking horrific. Um, Afghanistan, that was in 2006. So I got back from, got back from Iraq sort of cut around camp for a little bit, you know, loads of training, the bits and bobs, and then Afghan kicked off, and that was different. That was... Was this post 9-11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, um, yeah, this is post 9-11. This is like the, the boys have been out there. Uh, this is pretty much like the aftermath of that when it was all kicking off. So um, I was in D squadron and I was still in A squadron, but D squadron deployed to Afghanistan with 16 air assault. So they've done months of training with them guys, you know, you, you do it all over the, the UK and other places. So they're getting ready. So you sort of like train as a unit. So almost, you know, who you're going to be fighting against, uh, fighting with against the enemy. And then, um, yeah, they deployed, but I was still in camp. So I, very early on, a few of the boys got injured. Some, some boys got like uh, some heat issues with the vehicles. Like basically, like it sounds a bit extreme, but they were cooking in the cabs. It was so fucking hot. Right. The drivers next to the engines, for whatever reason, I think it, it might've been to do with something with the, the the, the the foam next to the engine where the driver sits anyway they a couple of boys come home very quickly back to camp so you, you get a thing called a casualty replacement mm -hmm. and uh, I remember it clearly I was cutting around camp in Windsor um, with the lads and the next thing I was like Bennett get up to the office I was like oh shit and I don't get told off I'm a good boy I'm thinking you're only <laughs> up there for praise or a bollocking so I was thinking I haven't done anything that good lately like um oh shit must be a bollocking anyway i went upstairs and uh, there's a gentleman called alex gladys squadron court major gladys who i like very much he's another dude come in close the door i was like shit okay he went uh, how do you feel about going to afghanistan i said yeah i'll go he went good lad you leave on tuesday pack your kit so this is like wednesday so i was like okay he actually meant standby so it wasn't it wasn't as dramatic as that but that's basically how the message come across so i was like right okay yeah, about turn, right, fuck off, get out of the office. So I got out of the office, went back and sat with the lads and um, sort of digested it. It was me and another guy that were going to go, um, yeah, pack your kit. So obviously I've got to get out of my green kit now and get into the desert kit. Mm -hmm. I've got none of that. So I had to fly around to the stores, uh, which is in camp, and, um, yeah, get measured up, get all your kit, get your bags, start signing loads of forms. And very quickly, yeah, so that was like on the Wednesday. I got, I got to go home on the Friday and then... Um, yeah, deployed. Got out there, mate, and that was just different gravy. I, it, it, I mean, it's hard to describe, but it, hopefully I, I portray it in a good way. Iraq, to me, was a traditional like urban setup, if you like. You know, you get out there, you've got all the different noises, the smells, the people, who I must say, some of the Iraqi people I met, you know, I didn't mention that before, but they, they were lovely. They wanted us there, and I really felt for them. You know, they've been in a, in a hellhole. Um, they were some of the nicest people I've ever met. You know, forget what you read and see about them. They are, they were awesome. Um, and obviously, you've got your bad guys, but you know, you're in your building. Imagine being in a town and a load of squaddies turn up, and then they're they're saying we're in control. That's fucking pretty hard, isn't it? Like they 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 know how to, you know, 
God knows how they get on with it. But um, when we got to Afghanistan, that was war in my mind. It was open country, beautiful rivers, mountains like you've never seen. It was like, shit, this is this is war. Like, you know, turned up. There's no buildings as such. Camp Bastion, which is a huge facility now, or it's been broken down now. But when I got there, there was, there was nothing. There was nothing there. Um, and... Uh, all the troops were out. There was none of my lot in camp. There was like one officer I'd never even seen before. He was like, oh, hello. Yeah, I'm so-and-so. I was like, yep, all right, wicked. I don't know who you are. Um, anyway, all the, yeah, you land, get out the get out the Hercules land there, get off the uh, the big aircraft, go into this little makeshift tent thing, sort of get shown where you, your regiments are living. And I think they, I think I was there for like two days, just kicking around camp. And then all the boys come back. They'd been out in the vehicles. The whole squadron turned up, mm. dusty, covered in shit. Um, yeah, and it just went from from the minute they got back to the minute we left four months later, it was less fucking go, mm. basically. Yeah. Can you, you remember your first sort of up in the. Yeah. yeah, 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 mate. It was um, um, unfortunately, one of the boys got killed in Sanging. Um, uh, it was like a, it wasn't a blue on blue, it was an accident in camp. And it was, um, we had to get the lads out of there and swap it over. It was, it was one of ours. It was horrific. Um, there was an accident with a vehicle. And, um, yeah, they had to get the boys out. So they mounted up onto um, the helicopters. We flew in and it was literally, they were going to get on our helicopter. There was no, they were going to wait around and show us what to do. We flew into Sanging. And um, it was like a little makeshift fucking hellhole basically it was a few buildings that the lads had taken over and sort of fortified and they had a company the Parisi I can't remember what company it was but um, yeah so they'd, they'd like been, like literally in foxholes you know dug in dugouts they're taking over the buildings like take that off the lads were at the top and um, we got off the helicopter sort of the lads were coming towards us in two sticks if you like so imagine like lining up you know when football players shake hands at the end of a game mm-hmm. you're walking like that we're walking past our oppos they're getting on we're getting off so that we're handing them shit and they're giving us bits and bobs the two officers had a quick quick chat yeah and then we got in our positions and then uh, waited for daylight and you sort of looking around thinking oh, okay now this that that for me then i was that was what i was it, i had arrived not that i was seeking it i'm not gun ho or anything like that but i was looking around and like looking in the lads the paras there you know uh, there was a few other boys. There was a, uh, a couple of sappers, a couple of engineers. They were they were good lads. They were right next to us. So you sort of in your dugouts, if you like, your scrapes. And then, um, yeah, there was contacts every day, day and night, mate. Boof, you'd just be laying there. Boof, boof, boof. That would go off. Everyone would stand too. Um, the paras on the roof would open up. And then, unfortunately, the vehicles that we had there weren't, um, they weren't doing what they should have been doing at first. So I think our lads predominantly were a bit, not doing what we should have been doing, like aiding the lads, if that makes sense. So we quickly got them fixed up, got some new parts sent in. This is all by helicopter, by the way, so you can imagine the logistics of that. And then uh, we have a thing called a scimitar, which is the small CVRT tracked um, tank. It's quite hard to describe to people. I don't want them to think it's a huge battle tank. It's not. They were designed to go through the trees in Malaya in the jungle, so they're quite skinny, but they're good, and they've got an up armour on them. But anyway, we we fashioned this mound that you could drive it up onto and be behind... um, there's a, there's a thing the British Army use called Hesco Bastion, which is like, imagine thin gauge wire that you, you becomes flat packed. You pop it open and fill it full of sand and that becomes your wall. So that's what you try and fortify the, fortify the base with. Gotcha. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Yeah. So then the vehicle could go up behind that and then all we'd have up poking over the top is a turret. So we can look for our 
like spotting equipment and fucking send it to the enemy. So that happened very, very quickly. The uh, Court of War Simpson that we had with us loved getting involved. And um, he said, yeah, look, we've got to get the vehicles up there to help the lads. So if you imagine in, in our square camp, if you like, it wasn't actually square, but we'd just do that for the demonstration purposes. Um, one on one side, one on the other. And then the para lads would have the snipers looking out at all times. Um, we had the javelin. You might have seen that footage of the, the young boy on top of the roof. He fires off a javelin, which is literally a, um, a missile off your shoulder, basically. Right. And they call it they call it a javelin because it goes into top attack. So it goes up in the air, locks onto the target. You fire and forget. So it goes up in the air and comes down like a javelin, like boom, onto right. the target. Or you can do direct roll and fire it straight at them. Great bit of kit. First time I saw that go off, you know, like this is it, this is the real deal. So, um, yeah, we're getting contacts every day, mate. Really, um, there wasn't much of me firing my personal weapon to be honest, it was normally through the vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lads were opening up, and then, um, we'd also have to push out and do patrols into the town. So, it, it was bombed up, Jay. Like, you, you couldn't recognize it, mate. Like, um, imagine, imagine a scene of bombed out buildings that is your typical fucking doors ranging off. Um, there's proper like darkened holes in that, in the exposed brick with the sand flying over them so they can hide up in there and things like that. But we were constantly getting attacked, basically, and we would spank them back. And then the guys would get on the net and get some fast air coming over. And I remember the first time I thought, what the fuck is going on here? was a, a thing called a JDAM, which is um, a joint direct attack missile, basically. It's a 2,000 pound bomb. And it come in and it just leveled this whole corner of this West compound bit. And I, it was like, and yeah, I just thought like shit. Um, thank God we got that on our side and that's not coming against us because that is a serious bit of kit. There's another thing as well called a, uh, an A-10, which is a, a, an aircraft and they strap a gun to it. I, the story goes that they, they couldn't, they couldn't get a gun for it. So they strapped this gun to it, which is similar to the one we've got on our tank. So you imagine Americans are like, oh yeah, just put that on. <laughs> and, it, and it fires around a, a yeah it's, it's heavy duty man but basically when it takes off it makes this incredible noise when it comes in to strafe the ground mm. it goes up it goes Aah! and then you don't hear anything but all, then all you see is it's like a like a snare drum kit across the size of a football pitch with thousands of rounds going and I think they penetrate about six or eight foot into the ground so you know imagine going yeah they're over there and then you just level out half a football pitch mm-hmm. so that's happening Literally, um, you know, in front of your eyes. And then there's always the threat of camp getting overrun and things like that. But um wasn't many of us there. There was probably about 60 blokes. Don't quote me on that. Probably 40, 45 blokes. And we're surrounded on all sides. And I'm not trying to drum this up to be like a, a, a worry sort of thing, mate. It was, um, yeah, it's well documented. If, you know, the, the tour was fucking horrendous, insane. So how long would you guys be there before you sort of switched over with a, with another squadron? Like, what would how long would you be posted in that? What, on tours? Now, so like where where you are now, where you're yep. describing? Yeah. Was you just was that your That's camp? Right. You I lived? spent my entire time there. I had two days in camp when I landed. We swapped out with them boys, and then yeah, I was there for three months. I think or something. Two and a half months, three months. Uh, yeah, probably two months. You're eating, sleeping, shit. Eat, sleep, piss, shit, cry, laugh. Yeah. Try and have a wank, um, <laughs> smoke. Yeah, do everything. But we were lucky where we were. We had a river, like, raging through. It was lovely. Like, train- I must say, Afghanistan, right, for, for what I saw of it, cutting over it, I'll tell you what, it's a shame it's not on the tourist list because I would go back there. The, the, the scenery, I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, I remember thinking, these people, 
fucking hell, they're tough. Like, you know, mm. um, but the countryside done it for me. I like a big, you know, country boy, Jay, do you know what I mean? I like me open spaces and stuff like that. But the, um, yeah, we had a river running through camp so we could wash in that. So you'd have a few boys sitting there with the weapons just watching that. Not, I'm, I don't mean like open river, like yeah. in, you know, they could walk in any time. It was in within the, the Hesco Bastion camp. But uh, yeah, you could you could wash in that. So you do all your, your daily bits, obviously food, uh, your ration packs and things like that. And then um, you would put in your orders if you needed anything in particular. But obviously every time a helicopter come, that is like having a... a um, come fucking get me signed in it a helicopter coming yeah. in they know where it's going to go there's only one place it's going to land so they would try and have a pop at that like so it was very we didn't have much contact if that makes sense you know if we run out of something we run out of it for the next helicopter come yeah so um in in that sort of situation like how long does it take you to get used to your scenes and your surroundings or do you just not are you constantly on high alert are you constantly sort of on this adrenaline rush of like you might have a little bit of respite, but then, you know, bang, something happens or, or do you quickly get to, to sort of camp life and, and you, f you fit into it? Yeah, exactly that, mate. You, uh, me personally, splitting, um, I, I slipped straight into it and the, and the boys around me did. And like I say, like, I can't speak highly enough for the, the parachute regiment, them guys there. It's just professional, mate. They're just out on out savages. They, they love what they do. Um, I'm very happy with how we behaved there, how we all conducted ourselves. You know, it was, um, it's hard to describe, and I don't want to sound like I'm glorifying it because I'm not. But like you know, football players—I keep going about football players, and I? I like rugby, not football. But you know, they get paid all that money to do what they're doing. There must be a point when they think this is the bollocks. Mm. You know, forget the money. This is—I'm playing football. I've got this. I've got, well, that was me in you know the, the military from start to finish, really. Yeah. Um, and when you're there and on tour and you're doing it, and you know, I always remember a, a hero of mine in my regiment called Paddy Island. Um, before we went to Afghanistan, sorry if I sidetracked, but he, we had a conversation once and I said, we're on a training area in Salisbury Plain. I said, why is there gates everywhere we go? And he said something to me that stuck with me. He said, um, you've, got to you've got to remember, Hugh, they, when they were trained for the Second World War, you imagine how many men, vehicles, the Americans have come over, the Canadians, you know, these gates through villages were to allow convoys that were fucking a mile long to, to mm. trundle through the countryside. Um, so, like, the effort that goes into it, you know, and the history of that and what them boys must have gone through, that stuck with me. And I remember when I got to Afghanistan, I remember thinking, potentially in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time when they're talking about this, there'll be pictures and there'll be young lads reading about it. And I was, that, that sort of spurred me on. I was like, I have arrived. You know, it took me straight back to being in them woods in Brentwood when I've been landing in little rivers in, as a 10-year-old boy or 11-year-old boy thinking I'm doing an OP on, like, the next-door neighbour's garden, watching him, you know, making notes. He's watering the plants, but to me, he's... He's laying bombs, do you know what I mean? Or he's doing this. It took me straight back to that. And I felt safe. I felt happy, man. I was like, this is the bollocks. I'm watching them all cut around. Uh, we're going out on patrols. Don't get me wrong. It was. I'm not saying I wasn't scared. You know, I shit myself pretty much on a daily basis. But the training kicks in. The, the feeling of, you know, you're not invincible, but you are... Um, yeah, come and have a go. We'll, yeah, we'll stick it on you sort of thing. That, that attitude was very much there. Like... Mm. You know, when we poked the nest, when we went out and, and, and aggravated them or had to go and do what we had to do, we was up for it. There was no, there was no, um, we didn't hold back. Yeah. yeah. Did you witness any airstrikes at all? Pardon? Did you witness any airstrikes? Airstrikes, yeah. So that, that bomb, that JDAM, that, that's, that yeah. comes from a, a fast jet. Um, yeah, they were almost on a daily basis, mate, to be honest. Right. I mean, I, I, 
I can only try and imagine how that must uh, be like to witness because I've been up in the Lake District before and you get the jets sort of cutting yeah. around between the mountains when they're out on trainings and just, just like they come out of nowhere. And the That's the thing. That's the thing. And even though you know it's coming because they'll shout, yeah, it's coming in. You're like, thank fuck for that. Especially if you know you've got lads out there because obviously they're hunkering down knowing that there's a big bomb coming on its way. But mm. see, when they go off, the it sounds funny, but I, I was sitting down the first time like, when I was next to that engineer guy when that, that first one went off near the compound. And I mean close, like not danger close, but close. Mm. The feeling through the floor, I remember just everything in me, my gut coming up, my heart, and I just thought, Shh, I want my mum. <laughs> I don't yeah. want my mum. Fuck that. I don't, I'm, you don't know what to think. And then before you know it, it's gone. And then one of the lads will just be in your face like, fuck it out. Fucking hell, did you hear that? And you're like, yeah, woo! And then a bit of woo going on. And I don't mean like gun ho American woohoo. I mean, you're letting out a bit of primeval woohoo. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah like you want to flick your hands off a little bit with the adrenaline. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I can imagine, mate, because the, the sound of them just flying by is just, just unreal. Yeah, it's, it's unnerving, but it's like I say, I'm pleased we have them and they don't. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. It's, um, how good is a feeling is that knowing that those guys are on your side and got your yeah. I mean you want to talk about feelings fast air is good but when you hear an Apache that has a very distinctive sound um, I can try and do it if you want yeah, it's, go. Like, it's like a I can't do it I can't do it any justice but it comes in mate Jay I'll tell you what there's no better noise in the world than a helicopter especially attack one and when you see three or four of them dotting around because them boys know what they're doing they come in you know like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They inspire you. When you hear a helicopter coming in and you know it's there to help you, which we requested them a lot, and they only get so much time on station, on air, you get them, you know, people bid for them across, you imagine there's only so many aircraft in theatre. So when you get them, but we, like I say, we were pretty kinetic where we were in Sanging. So we, if we asked for it, we got it. Mm. Blackhawks occasionally, and you hear the guys on the radio, like this gunslinger, five, five coming in like all these like you know you get the widow makers and all that and then all the different call signs and they're just cool like yeah i've got him okay yeah guys sit down watch this and then it goes quiet and then you just hear <laughs> but at the same time you know i'm not i'm not um i'm not glorifying that you know at the other end of that there's some fucking boys probably some of them didn't want to be there or they're high or yeah. motivated for other reasons you know not at one time was it like yeah, you know, you know it's going on. There's a human cost to that. I'm, I'm not glorifying it, but yeah, you, you're pleased they're on our team, you know. No, look, politics to to one side. You guys are there to do a job, right? And mm. you are trained and skilled to make sure that um, you know whatever your directive is from that base and whatever operation you're on, uh, you, you're going to do your utmost best to make sure that happens. And you've got these guys in your back pocket to call on if, if you need them to help you get through. And, and um, I'm, I'm glad you did. And, and, you know, I thank you for your service because thank you. I think, I think um, what, I don't know if we're given us praise in this country. I don't know if we're, we're just drip fed um, info through the media, but um, f for me, like uh, I've always had um, my, my great granddad used to be in the Navy. Yep. So, I've always had like an utmost respect for anyone that's served for their country. And, I, and I've always said from a young age that if I got, and this might sound a bit sort of a shirker response, but if I ever got called up, then I'd go and do my bit for Queen yep. Country, like without a doubt, 100%. Um, 
Um, I was never upfront enough to say I wanted to go and do this for a career, but I've got the utmost respect for the guys. And, you know, they, they're, they're not calling the political shots. They're not moving the pawns around the chessboard. No. Uh, saying, you know, spend this money on that and do this money on that. You guys are amongst it in the mix. And, um, yeah, we, we, I think everyone, you know, owes, owes a large chunk of their freedom to people like you that have gone out there and, and, and done it. And, and yeah, nice one, man. No, it means a lot. And, you know, you've got to remember, people are volunteers for when they join. And when you get in there, you know, you find out very quickly who's going to stick around and who's not. But to, to just elaborate on that, you, when you're on tour, mate, it's, it's for your pals and the person to the left and the right of you and, you know, everyone else there that's an ally. You just want to fucking dig out and do your best because, you well, you are selfless, but the, uh, at that time, you just you just want everyone to get out of it and get back. And unfortunately, on that tour, we didn't. We lost a few guys, you know, so that was that was hard. But, um, yeah, when we left, go on. How do you process that, Hugh? Is that something you can process then and there? Or is it because of your surroundings and what's going on, you have to almost bottle that and, and just move on to the next task? Or how did you deal with that? Yeah, for me, I broke it down. So there was there was the, the quick grieve, if you like, like, fuck, this has happened. Shit. Shit. You can't believe it. Bit of disbelief. No, 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 this isn't true. We'll see him again, or no, they got the, the name wrong, as horrible as that sounds. Not that you want anyone else to die, but you think, no, everyone's all right. Everyone's mm-hmm. going to be all right. And then very quickly you find out they're not. Um, and I I didn't think about it. I completely switched off. It, not ignored it, because that's not the right word to use. I just didn't deal with it, to be honest. I sort of dumped it um, and just got on with the rest of the tour. Um there, there was a few, a few times where you just think, Shh, like, what is, what is this all about? You know, what is, what are we actually achieving here? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's hard, hard. So you you done four months on the second tour in in um, sorry your first tour in Afghan, four months long, right? Yep. So it sounds like a very long, hard slog. Fucking, it was long enough, bruv, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you you come back. And what, what, in your opinion, what's it like coming back to like Civvy Street, the regular world, when you know one day you're in Afghanistan with all this craziness going on around you, bullets and bombs flying around, and then the next thing you're walking down Brentwood High Street. You know, yeah. how, how do you? Is there like um, is there a process that you go through, like with the army, sort of you know easing you back in, or you just turn up at Brentwood Station and and bang, you you're back. Yeah, so it, the uh, the process is called uh, decompression. So when you leave a tour, you you decompress. So they normally send you to somewhere to all be together and sort of wind down. Uh, and, but in this particular incident, we went to a, a place in Cyprus. So we flew from Kandahar, which is a city in Afghanistan, which I'd love to have walked about and cut around in. You know, like in times gone by, I bet that was a fucking naughty gaff. That would have been really good to cut about in. Um yeah, we left Kandahar, we flew to Cyprus, and the camp was called Camp Bloodhound. Now, there was a few guys in my regiment, so you imagine, my pro- say, say 120 blokes come back, but previously the paras had got there, and it was quite a big camp, and they'd, they'd decompressed how they would decompress, and they smashed the life out of the camp. Um, basically, we, we, it, I don't want to discredit the military here, because obviously we took part in it, but yeah, we got loads of alcohol. Mm-hmm proper alcohol like you know like loads of alcohol there and sort of just got left to our own devices mate for two days mm. you know 
pissing the bed, fighting, arguing. Um, not a lot of sort of shoulder stuff going on or, or arm or crying into necks or anything like that. It was just fucking get it out of your system. So we did. Then we went back to camp in Windsor and um, we were let loose on the town there for a couple of days. And I remember that was that's when it dawned on me that this wasn't normal. This wasn't a normal tour. So not to discredit anything anyone's done before, but the, the unprecedented amount of drama we got in out there is in the day in, day out fights, you know, the people we'd lost. Um, when we got back to uh, Windsor, uh, and by fights, I mean with the enemy, not with the lads, by the way. Uh, when we got back to Windsor, it was the first time I'd saw MPs sort of patrolling the town because they knew we were back. Right. Which was a bit unnerving because I'd always, I'd be, I'd, cut my teeth in Windsor, you know what I mean? That was my first, where my regiment lived, we've been there for, for, for a very long time. And obviously it's, you know, the prestigious town, the, the, the castle and things like that. And there's an, another regiment that lived down the road in Victoria Barracks. So we're a proper military town and I've never seen military police. police. So that was a bit unnerving. I think, yeah, what's different now? And then, you know, lads deal with it in different ways. And once the booze sort of took hold or, you know, I say alcohol, sometimes it's not even alcohol. Someone could look at you. Uh, a bit weird, you think, hang on a minute, I've gone from being over there, like the distrust and stuff. But that, that's quite, a, I've given you quite a wide, vague sort of thing. But for me, I can only speak from my experience. Um, yeah, it, it, I just didn't, I was a bit numb, to be honest, mate. I was just thinking, right, well, I've done Cyprus, decompression. I'm back in Windsor. When can I go home? I want to see my mum. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was in Windsor for a couple of days. Yeah, the MPs were sort of cutting around town. There was a few dramas. We sort of got told, look, if you think it's going to kick off or something's going to happen or you get... Because I know there's a lot of people like yourself that would like the military, but there's also a lot of people that don't. So there was a lot of people that want to antagonise soldiers and to their detriment, they start it, but we always finish it. And then we look like the bad guys because there's six civvies knocked out on the ground and four soldiers standing there saying, well, fucking, like, don't start sort of thing, you know? Mm. And that's not every time, by the way. Um... Yeah, so very quickly, done wins. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Like, you hand your weapon in, you sort of do that, chat a load of bollocks, and then, um, boom, got back to Brentwood. Uh, yeah, numb, Jay, to be honest, mate. I wasn't I wasn't particularly traumatised at the time, I didn't think. I don't think I saw anything that disturbed me. Obviously, I was a bit uncomfortable out there, but it was nothing. Um, you know, I was still training. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was just numb to it, but nothing, nothing. And how long between coming back to going back out again, roughly? So we got back from there and then I was in camp. Uh, My third tour, uh, second time in Iraq, was at the end of 2000. I want to say, obviously, this is always going on out there at this time. It was just the way the regiments rotate through. So my Mm -hmm. regiment was out there anyway. There was a squadron. We got literally two squadrons away. Normally a squadron getting ready to go away and a squadron on its way back or resting. Um, so I moved out of D Squadron now, and then I went to B Squadron, which was um, a thing that my regiment does, because predominantly we do recce, reconnaissance. That's that's our bag. That's what we do. Um, and uh, B Squadron was being set up as a, a new thing there with focusing on reconnaissance and surveillance and different techniques and things like that, which really excited me at the time. It was, it was cool. You know, I wanted to get into that. There was loads of courses we could do that was opened up to us, where D Squadron was 16 Air Assault and was with them b squadron was its own thing and we were going to go off and and do bits so um to answer your question mate yeah 2000 and i want to say early 2009 i got out in 2010 and my last tour was in 2009 because i got out pretty sh- pretty sharpish after that mm. so yeah we deployed to iraq for the uh for my second time and uh like i say yeah it was 
completely different. We were doing a completely different role. It was a brigade reconnaissance force. So my my squadron and a, another few guys that had been bolted on um, prior to deploying, we'd gone on some really cool courses. In the army, you call them Gucci, like Gucci courses, like, you know, uh, loads of surveillance courses, uh, different techniques, uh, urban, uh, in the field, all, all sorts of stuff that was, you know, really, really good. Loads of different weapon packages, learning about different weapon systems, like really opened my eyes. I thought, oh, this is cool. I, I really, really enjoy this. Yeah, and then we deployed, and um, obviously Iraq was a completely different beast when I got there then from that first tour in 2003. When I went, it was almost fucking unrecognisable. Um, again, landed at night, get off the aircraft, intro accommodation, uh, Norwegian lines in bang in the middle of uh, the, the base. And yeah, the, the, the guys that were already there were pretty, pretty fucking keen to get home to be honest mate because it was it was it was heavy duty so yeah sort of hand and hand over take over the guys that were already there they got out within like a two-week period and then we we're in the driving seat then and we were just going out on ops all the time um going out to find out where the enemy were you know there was a big big problem by then of ieds which is uh, improvised explosive devices which they'd got very very good at hiding um for example you know down the road they know we've got to go down it because there's only one way out of camp They'd bury them. They have this thing they call the lollipop system. They'd burn a tire on the tarmac, which would make the hole. They would then drop the explosive in, run a lead or a command wire um, just under the tarmac slightly to a, 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 a place, you know, off the side of the road or a shop window or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and then they'd kick the sand back over that, 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 that burnt bit out of the ground. And then obviously the boys drive over it and boof, they'd detonate it. But they wouldn't just do one. They'd do you know, 10, 11, 8, 6, or whatever they needed to do along the road. And the, the word for that is a daisy chain. So they would wait for the first vehicle to drive over. So they was normally in the centre of the vehicle. So they'd set them off. It'd go poof, 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 poof. And obviously the first thing they do is, when that happens, the boys get out of the vehicles. And then, of course, they'd hit us with small arms fire. So now the lads are fucking under attack, you know, in the street. So our job, we were tasked with um, finding the boys that were, uh, well, I say boys, monsters that were doing that, who were, um, yeah, predominantly like the, you know, um, the, the bomb makers, the, the the guys that were doing it. So we'd put eyes on them, um, yeah, find out where they're living, their supply chains, who's doing it, who's the main man in the town, what's going on. You know, it was interesting. So um, that, that really opened my eyes. That was a different tour. You know, we, we were waiting in the wings as such, just ready for, if we needed to, to switch it on, we could, you know. Mm -hmm. Was a lot of that night operations? Or yeah, it... predominantly all night. But you can get a lot done in the day, just obviously... Um, it depends if you're walking through to be uh, like over or covert, really. Probably more 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 to do with covert operations. Um, yes. You know, again, that's not me big time in it either. That's um, it's pretty pretty standard stuff for for that for that nature of that tour, to be honest. Mm. So you said you got out pretty sharpish once that tour ended. Yeah, that tour was six months, um, and I loved it. Again, you know, it was it was difficult in places like all tours are, but. Being in the army was my happy place. It was my mecca, mate. I I didn't think I was ever going to get out. You know, you you signed for twenty two years, and as far as I'm concerned, that wasn't long enough. I was going to fucking be an old boy. Like I wanted to be a veteran. One thing we do in our camp, when the old boys come in and they come in and they're talking about the old days, and they say, oh, "I'm driving. Just give me a whiskey and water." <laughs> think, what? Like you know, free, big old shot of whiskey, and then they top it up with water, and he still thinks he's going to drive home. The geezer's 80. Like, do you yeah. know what I mean? He's not. His son's going to come and pick him up. But he's like, yeah, yeah, stick it in. Like, tell the stories. I love all that. You know, you sit with them old boys. They're, they're proper chaps. Mm. Um, 
we got back from that tour and I don't remember anything um, being anything out of the ordinary, but cut a long story short, I had some time off and then um, I come home back to Brentwood, saw my mum and uh, yeah, and then I went back to camp and bearing in mind I was greener than green, I didn't think I was going to get out and um, I'd always have my kit ironed or, or part of it and then I'm standing in the, the hallway where we lived, you know, the room's ironing it, hung it up on my cabinet as I did, went to sleep and I woke up on a Monday, mate, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And the feeling I can get, or the only way I can describe it without getting a bit emotional, but um, yeah, do you know like a skater helmet, you know what they wear, like the traditional ones, like it's sort of like on your forehead and over there. It just felt like I had something on me. Hmm. Yeah. So I've woken up, gone to bed, happy, happy soldier, but I've woken up with this pressure. If that's the right word to use, I just, on my head didn't know it was obviously there's nothing there I haven't done anything mm. I got up looked at my uniform nope don't want to put that on didn't want to put my boots on um, I just felt like shit mate so I put my PT kit on it's like physical training and black kit do you know what I mean pair of trainers and uh, sat in my room for a little bit and I think I missed first parade which was unheard of for me I'm normally like geeking it up like the army's got a thing about being five minutes before five minutes you know I'd get there at 20 minutes I'd stand there you know so that was unusual for me and then um as quick as that feeling come, it sort of passed. So I've got trains, I sort of bimbled down there. And everyone's like, well, where was you on parade? A bit unusual. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, didn't really have much to do that day. Then the next day was the same. And it just got a little like, a little bit worse every day. And I, I sort of started covering it up. But this thing on my head, this this feeling was getting tighter and tighter. And then all of a sudden, it was like someone had done the chin strap up on me. And I was like, I can't get this off. This is fucking doing my brain in. Mm. So... Um, I went up to the court major's office and I signed off. I left. I, and they were like, nope, what's happened? What's going on at home? Is it a woman? Is it this? Is it that? Are you fucking taking something? Or what's, this isn't you. This is well out of character. I said, look, I want to go. I've had enough. I don't know what it is, but I can't be here anymore. And um, I knew something was up because I didn't get emotional. It was like, it was the complete opposite. It was like, you've got to go, mate. So I was like, shit. Um, so the army done what the army done. They sort of withdrew me from the other lads. Um, not that I was a bad egg or anything like that. I certainly wasn't pushing my feelings onto anyone else. Dave was more shocked than me. Like the boys couldn't believe it. And um, you know, it was hard, man, seeing them get ready for the next tour, which they were. We were ready to deploy to Afghanistan the following, well, within a few months, really. Hmm. And um, yeah, it was fucking hard for me watching the lads train for that. They sort of whisked me away from them so I couldn't see them. And then very quickly, they were out of camp doing training. So they were gone for a couple of months at a time. Do you know what I mean? I'd still talk to them. And then, uh, yeah, it takes a year to get out of the military. They call it signing off. Um, it's supposed to be like resettlement and things like that. You know, they rotate you back to being a, a civilian or normal or whatever that means. But, you know, from the age of two, I wanted to be in the army. And now I've got to find out what I want to do. Um, I didn't fucking know. So, um, yeah. Was, fast you offered, was you offered like any sort of support counselling or anything like that during that period? To be honest with you, mate, no. I, I can't really remember any initial... I think I jumped through a few hoops, which is what they have to do, like played lip service to it. But And that's not to discredit the army in any way. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to join the army, but then I wanted to leave. So they could have told me anything, mate, and I was just thought, no, nah, I'm out of here. Um, but like I say, my regiment is busy, so it was actually pretty quiet in camp. Do you know what I mean? The... the I think all the regiments were away bar HQ, which were sort of guys that were just maintaining camp, you know, like light scales, if you like. So there was no one I really knew or who I would listen to in camp anyway. Or um, 
and I don't mean that as a disrespectful way, I just mean, you know, there was no one there that knew me well enough to fucking talk me out of it. So I signed off and uh, yeah, fast forward a year with not much going on really. I didn't even hand my ID card. I mean, the last day I just bowled out with some like new dude on camp, like, excuse me, you can't walk out. I just turned back, smiled at him like, cheers, pal. <laughs> I'm gone. Enjoy. Have a good time, brother. Put some more polish on your boots, fucking maggot. Um, yeah, so um, jumped in the car. My mum was there. I had a couple of Budweiser's on the way back. I think I cried from the gate and I don't know why I cried. I wasn't emotional. It wasn't tears of, it was just fucking hell. So I cried from there to like the roundabout near Maidenhead. And then, uh, yeah, uh, Maidenhead. Uh, yeah, Maidenhead, isn't it? Yeah, just start the road. Anyway, from there, mate, not far from camp, man, I sort of bored my eyes out. And then I got back to Brentwood. And that feeling hadn't gone, but I didn't tell anyone. Mm. And then um, prior to that, I, I sort of missed a bit out. My my stomach was quite bad. I was I was having problems with blood, like losing blood through my bum you know, when I go to the toilet. And um, I didn't tell anyone about that. So now... Hughes out the army. I had to find out what I wanted to do. Um, I went to speak to Martin, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, yeah. and um, he runs a very successful uh, security company up in London. And um, like pretty much all the well within the square mile, any building in there would have like some of these guys in there. So they do like man guarding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, obviously, I was in a bit of a bad place. So he offered me a job. I took it, and um, yeah, no, I earned a lot for that really because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So. That sort of got me grounded, but I knew very, very quickly. Obviously, I wasn't right. I sort of kept that quiet as well. But my stomach just deteriorated like rapidly, and I was keeping it quiet from everyone. And the job wasn't demanding, but it was early starts, and it was up city, and I didn't know anyone. And mm. my big thing was I've lost the biggest thing that I wanted the most out of the army, and I got was cohesion, you know, the brothers and all that sort of stuff. Really? Um, that was, yeah. yeah, that was gone, mate. So anyway. Yeah, I'm cutting around doing this job, and it, it, you know, I'm, I'm I'm lucky enough to be out of the office. I can walk around. I'm checking on the guys. I'm going to different buildings, meeting clients. You know, it was great uh, initially. It was great, but I just knew it wasn't for me. But it didn't matter what I was doing because in my head I was thinking, I'm not right. This thing in my head or on me is just compressing me. Mm. Then my stomach got really bad, and then um, cut a long story short, I uh, I got offered a my mate, my one of my close mates, PJ, uh, one of my best friends, his brother was ex-Grenadier Guard, so he, he'd been out of the army. A job offer come up to go to Cairo in um, Egypt. Yeah. So this is, this is 2011 now. And um, it was the uh, the uprising, you know, the Arab Spring thing had kicked off. With President Mubarak, I think, was getting kicked out of office. Do you remember? It was all a bit going up in the air, wasn't it? Yeah. The whole region was sort of on fire, if you like. And um, it was a very simple brief from... Um, a, a firm out in, uh, in Kent that I, that I work for. Danny got me this job. That's the guy who's in the Grenadier guys got me this job and said, look, we'll go out there. We've got to do this. It should be a few days. Help get this guy back and um, we'll be back. So we uh, met a guy at the airport who gave us all the information and stuff like that and what we needed to do and a bit of, bit of spending money in our pocket. And off we went to Cairo for three days. Um, yeah, I was there six months. I didn't come back. Yeah. Sort of, what, what, how did the three days turn to six months? Well, we sort of got there and very quickly realised this is not what we were meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, got what we needed to do done, which wasn't very interesting. So I won't bother, uh, won't bother divulging that. But it was basically just get this guy out of country. We just needed to help him. He was in a spot of bother and he couldn't get out of one place to another. So we facilitated that. Mm-hmm. And then um, the company that was out there is a, it's a German energy firm, um, they had to get their staff out, basically. 
because they were worried. So I think for the insurance policies, like we were there to just advise. We weren't armed or anything like that. But at the time, it was in a place called Madi, which is in the centre, which is quite an affluent area. Yeah. And um, I just remember thinking, fucking hell, this is the real deal. This is this is cool. Like, you know, um, cutting about, um, going to these people's houses, saying, right, you're going to have to leave with us now, come with us, putting them in the vehicles, escorting them to the airport. At that time, I think my friends were still putting flights on out of Cairo. But very quickly, everyone just like the airport was, you know, like a scene out of fucking Star Wars, mate. There was goats going one way, people doing this, donkeys getting led up, and we're just pulling up in these motors, chucking the people out to their handlers that had flown over and gotten them out of country. And then um, it all sort of quietened down. So we changed from personal protection, if you like, to asset for people's houses. Yeah. So they'd request that we'd go and do this and get some information. And the, we'd done such a good job that the, the company said, look, can you just stay there and make sure it's all like over the troubles? So we didn't. We didn't plan on being there for a short time or a long time. It's just, we just rolled with it, mate. And nice. um, yeah, it was great. It was good. I learned a lot. Uh, learned a lot from Danny. He was a good lad. And then um, the firm that we were working for, that German energy firm, they they also had some things out in Libya. So obviously that was spreading now. The the uprising was going right across, wasn't it? You know, the the problems with Gaddafi and things like that. Yeah. Um, so jumping from, from there, yeah, I, was, I think I was there about a year in um, in in Cairo, all, all told. And then um, some other dudes flew out. We had done a bit of a handover takeover. Danny went back and then some uh, guys, Jamie and another guy called Alex, they're both war Marines who worked for this firm that I was working for at the time. Um, so they're ex-war Marines. They flew out and, um, yeah, we, we took over there, done a great job. Um, and the firm said, look, we need you to go to Libya. Pretty similar story, really. If you imagine now, imagine like a an inferno rolling as it's spreading across the country. They said, we need to do exactly what you've done here over there. So um, that was pretty cool how we got into country there. We flew from Cairo to somewhere, but basically we ended up in Jerba, which is next to Tunisia. It's a little island. We were shacked up in this little hotel. And then um, we effectively walked across the border. Um, This isn't me big time, by the way. This is is quite a cool story. The... um, Obviously, the rebels were in control of everything by then. I think Gaddafi had pushed... No one actually knew where he was at the time, so it was a bit of a fucking badlands free-for-all. Mm. When we got to the border, he said we were uh, news reporters and our friends, we had to take some batteries to the Corinthia Hotel, which is in the centre of Tripoli, which is quite a, like a landmark, you can imagine. Mm. And um, they were like, all oh, right, yeah, cool. Like, where's your batteries? And we were like, oh, yeah, they're in... Um, they're in, a, they're in a bag on the way, but we, we're like the first part. We just want to go in and make sure the guys are there. So like, yeah, okay, like asking all these questions they're in their broken English, these Libyans. And there was just this one, like, not, he didn't look menacing or anything like that. He just looked like he knew what we were saying. He was one of the rebels. He looked like a cool dude. And all of a sudden, he just broke into perfect English. He was like, where are you look from? And we were like, yeah, obviously from England, but we're, we're coming in. He was like, yeah, why are you really here? He spoke perfect English. It sort of caught us on a bit unawares. And we said, look, mate, we've got to get in there. Got to get these batteries. We've got some people there we need to get out. Uh, we just want to help them. He said, right, cool, I'll help you. So it very quickly turned into a bit of a, um, bit of like a, an op to get away from these other rebels that weren't so helpful. So we, we jumped in his car. He flagged the car down. So you imagine we're standing with Kit, just me and Jamie at this point. Like we've got a rucksack on, like a fucking T-shirt, and that's it. And um, a bit of money. And then, uh, yeah, this car rocked up, mate, and I'll never forget it. It was like a bashed up old Toyota. He's got these tunes blaring like the beads in the window. Geezer's got sunglasses on. It's fucking pitch black. Do you know what I mean? I looked in there. I thought, why is this geezer stopping a gangster to take us to Tripoli? Hmm. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong. The fella was amazing. His name was Anwar. 
and um, he's a bit of a dude. He turned out to be a bit of a dude. We didn't know at the time, but he was our best bet to get in. Do you know what I mean? So uh, me and Jamie jumped the back of the motor with this other fella, and we're um, was just flying through loads of rebels doing whatever they want on the side of the road. They'd they'd all um, hijacked the Toyota Hiluxes and sort of put weapons on the back of them, weapon systems on the back of them. There's music going off. One minute they're happy, then they'd be like a burst of gunfire, like a bit of trace going across the sky and all that. I just remember looking at Jamie, and he's he's a good guy himself, you know. He's like, "Fucking hell, mate, we're here." Mm. So, um, yeah, we sort of drove through the night for a few hours, and then pulled over and had um, had a bit of scoff on the side of the road. Do you know what I mean? They're like cooking up this lamb thing on the barbecue. I just remember thinking, "This is lovely." I can't remember the last time I ate. Obviously, since getting off the uh, getting across the border a bit, so we smashed that food in, and then we arrived in Tripoli as it got light. And pulled up to the hotel and then yeah sort of conducted our business sort of snuck in and got comfortable how long were you in libya for so i was in libya for a total i'm gonna say probably just under a year mm. um there was a bit initially at the start was obviously a Gaddafi thing was still going on so there was news crews coming out once we got to to triple itself and got in there there was loads of like uh, westerns if you like all different news medias other guys doing what we're doing, but we predominantly stayed pretty quiet because we had a proper task to do. You know, that, that company that had been there, we were aiding them. They'd, they'd left a skeleton crew of their employees, yeah. uh, some German employees that were really good. Um, and they hung on to the last bit. Obviously, they didn't know which way it was going to go with Gaddafi. So but at that point, the rebels were good. You know, they, I haven't got a bad word to say about the, uh, the Libyans there. You imagine they've been oppressed by that guy for however long. Mm. And then they get that chance to, to show their freedom. But... You know, it's a clannish state, you know. They can call on the sides of Essex is their backup and they'll come and back you up if it kicks off, you know. And they're all armed up, them boys. They don't mess about. So um, that was quite interesting. But we had Anwar to call on our little Nokia 3310 that was, was, wasn't was a Nokia 3310. Um, yeah, and he got us out of a lot of shit, mate. He could um, he could sway it through checkpoints if we ever had any problems and that. We'd just get on the phone, hand the phone over and next thing, whoop, little makeshift barrier would go up and we could conduct our business and get on our way you ever get any sort of spicy situations out there when you've got like two different opposing groups rowing in a language that you don't understand yeah and you're sort of sitting there thinking well yeah. don't know what's going on but this don't feel good yeah and i'll tell you what mate the, the, the word the correct word you used there was feel that is where i learned to gauge like i'd you know i'd 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 done a bit, I suppose, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we didn't really get a chance to mingle with the locals there. That was, you know, uh, um, the interpreters I learned a lot from, but the body language, because they're quite abrupt people mm. anyway, you know, they're fierce, but they could be, you think they're fucking going for it. It's like you've just done something to his wife. He's not, he's just talking about football. Yeah. Like, who's won this or that? And then um, I can remember one in the hotel we were staying at, the uh, Atafik, it was called, the hotel. I won't forget, there was a, there was two Egyptian boys that were like the bellboys, if you like. They, they almost looked like twins, but one was older, like slick back hair, like your traditional sort of Egyptian look, but they were pretty lumpy, do you know what I mean? They, they had a bit about them, and uh, I really liked them. They got me out of some shit. But one story I can remember, the um, I'd just gone up to my room, and the door knocked, and it was one of them, and he said, uh, there's some people downstairs who want to see you. I was like, people want to see me here? And I'm thinking, fucking hell. And I didn't have time to nip to James' room, and I couldn't. I didn't know where he was. So he said, yes, there's some people here. I said, all right. And they're waiting for me? He said, yeah, all right, all right. I'm not going to come down the normal stairs. I'll come down the staff stairs and I'm going to come through. I'm going to see who they are first. Mm. And uh, I sort of trotted across the top of the landing, come down. It wasn't a massive hotel, but you know, you just think like I've peered over the edge. I could hear all the voices, the people with dinner plates going. Anyway, come round through the staff. And so I've come behind them. There's about six geezers all armed up looking towards where I'm going to come down the stairs. 
I mm. thought, what the fuck is going on here? What have I done? Like, so I've sort of done that <clears throat> behind them. And as they turn around, they're like, oh, yes, yes. Like, come here, talking, come forward. I was thinking, nah, this is this doesn't look good. And then just as they parted, Anwar was there. Phew! I'm like, Anwar! <laughs> Bang, fuck, you're here. It was like a scene out of Only Fools Dogs, mate. Like, Del Boy's got himself in trouble. I was like, Anwar? He's like, yes, I'm going out of town. I was like, okay. He said, I want you to meet this and that and introduce me to this person. Any problems, you tell this person. So we sat down, drank about 100 cups of coffee. Uh, I eventually stopped shaking, but the whole time, you know, they're just looking into my eyes thinking, who is this dude? Like, what is he up to? They didn't know who we were. And, um, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. But another one in the hotel, which was good. The um, I'm not up on my African football teams, but they still haven't got Gaddafi at this point. And me right. and Jamie were in his room watching the DVD on his little laptop sitting there. And um, we had no clients to look over at this point as well. I must stress that as well. It wasn't like we were just there on a the jolly. They, they, everyone was out of country, so we were just keeping low. And um, there was a burst of gunfire, which wasn't, un which wasn't unusual, but this was a little bit too close. Then there was another one. It was all a bit, all right, here we go. And his vehicle zipping around. Well, by the time I'd got to the window to pull the curtain back to have a look, the sky just lit up. like Straight away, no problem. Went to the bags. That was nice. Sort of laptop down, unplugged it, grabbed the go bag, um, got on the phone. Straight back to Kent, found a guy called Mickey, who was our um, it was our gaffer. I said, look, Mick, he's like, yeah, I went listen to this, put the phone up by the window. He was like, yeah, no problem. So while our escape route, we would um we'd plan to get to Malta, which would be the which would be the bug out place because Malta's not too far. So try and lay low for as long as we can and then get down and get out to Malta. Mm. But we thought, okay. Claps down the, the laptop, got the bag ready, phone back to to camp if you like and, and warn him off and then just sit it out tight and see what happens. Well, anyway, the gunfire sort of intensified and just went on for ages, right? So I thought, right, let's get some squaff. Quickly run downstairs and the, the one of the doormen there, the uh, one of the Egyptian guys was there. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, no problem, don't worry. And I was like, what do you mean, don't worry? He's like, you know, he's kicking off. He said, no, uh, the Africa Cup, some team had just beat someone. <laughs> So the fucking locals come out. You know that moment when you Yeah, man. The football. I was like, it's football. I was like, you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So-and-so's just beat so-and-so. I just walked slowly back upstairs to Jamie. I was like, mate, open the laptop. Fucking hell. It's football. They won the football for the Net African Cup or something like that. Yeah, phone back to camp. Like, Sorry. Yeah. Cancel. We're staying here. Yeah. Yeah, that was that. So, yeah. A totally different celebration to a... Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, smashing up Brentford High Street if England lost or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, you, you get out of Libya. Yeah. What's your next port of call? So, I got out of Libya, and then um, I had another uh, uh, same firm that I was looking for in Kent. We had like we had a little job in, in India, in New Delhi. You know, there's nothing really to mention about that. I was looking after a guy from a big pharmaceutical company. I basically stayed in, in that world, you know, the close protection, if you want to call it that, if that is such a thing hmm. um, that I was doing. Um, yeah, I stayed there for a bit, done that. It was great. And I, I still had this, you know, this thing on my head. I still knew. And by the way, the, the entire time I was in Libya, my bum was still bad. And I kept that from the lads. I was losing blood. Mm. Every time I went to the toilet, I was dehydrated all the time. I didn't tell anyone at home. I sort of masked it for them. But the boys must have clocked on that something was wrong with me. And then, um, yeah, I as, I as I was leaving Libya, I knew I wasn't well. So I got back. I'd done the India trip. And then I spent a little bit of time in Germany, um, in Dusseldorf, doing some bits there, again, looking after some people. And then um, I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I come back to 
come back to the UK and uh, again, I saw Martin Edwards and he's got a son called Bryn, who's one of my best friends. Um, he's a one Marine. And um, I was working uptown with them again. I, I went back to Ultima and at that point I was literally, you know, dead on my feet. I was sort of just trying to blag it every day. I was getting up, eating a packet of Imodium, painkillers, drinking water, like anything other than, you know, I, I wasn't right. And they very kindly helped me again. You know, and Brim was amazing. Um, like, I, I owe him a lot, you know. Um, I love him like a brother, really. He's like he's like, he's like my little brother. Um, yeah, and I, I think I collapsed. I, I, I collapsed somewhere. I got to train home to Newbury Park, and my fiance's Claire, by the way, I haven't mentioned her yet, have I? Um, yeah, fiance Claire's mum was picking me up. And uh, I was leaning against a, a, a post outside on the thing, and she, I sort of got in the car and collapsed. And I woke up in um, uh, Queen's Hospital in Montford, and they um, they were doing loads of testing and stuff like that. Um, and they said it was ulcerative colitis in my colon, so they they done some tests on me. And then, uh, yeah, very quickly deteriorated, mate, and it it, it basically just turned into a, an absolute nightmare. So from from doing all that to coming home. I um yeah, I went to the hospital. They'd done some tests and then they called the surgeon up. Um this is like over over a course of a week, like I was getting worse and worse and worse. They tried me on some like horrible drugs, naughty drugs, um, mm. as a thiaprine, which is like a I think it gets in to reset your immune system and just basically try and, and reboot you. That didn't that gave me pancreatitis, so that made me worse. Then another drug I had a reaction to. I've never been allergic to anything in my life. Um but obviously at this time as well, I'm not fit. You know, yeah. uh, the muscle wastage and all that, you know, just deteriorate. Mate, I was deteriorating anyway. I'm rapid, like just down, down, down. But my mental state, like Jay, I've never, never, never admitted it to anyone. Like, I, I didn't let anyone know. But that whole time, that helmet now, that feeling was just yeah. like I had a visor almost, you know. Yeah. It was on me. And um, yeah, I got my mum there. Claire's come up to see me and they said, um, we need to operate. So I said, okay, if that's the only thing we need to do. I didn't react to the drugs. So they took me down to the surgery room and I was in surgery for, I think it was like 12 hours or something like that. They they basically cut you from like the top of where your belt line would be up to just under where your pecs are yeah. at, at an angle. And they thought they were going to remove like a, a sports sock size of my colon, but they didn't. They took the, they took the whole thing. They said it was completely, completely ulcerated. Right. Like, yeah, they, the guy was like... Fuck knows how long he, how he's dealt with that. Like, I do not know. Um, mm. That is crazy. So they took that, but they also take your uh, appendix um, and all the other bits that are connected to that. So they they literally just leave you with um, a stoma, which is it comes out of your, your next to your belly button on the right hand side. They they pop your intestine out. They cut your your stomach open and pop your intestine, and then you have a bag. Mm. So they stitch me back up. I woke up from that with a stoma, and then um, yeah sort of just had to deal with that sort of fast forward it all happened that quickly and then um so i'm shitting into a bag um yeah it was the press man like whoa this is not cool how long were you in hospital for so i think after my operation i was in there for about two weeks um did you start to feel any better at all no right. no the feet the my my big thing was i was decapacitated and I didn't feel like a bloke anymore I was out of control like as in out of control for myself now I've got to rely on people mm. I, don't, I don't really trust anyone yet if that makes sense and it's mm. not to discredit anyone and I know the health professionals are, are very very good but in, from, from my world oh, I didn't know you from Adam you know I, I was back into that 
pre joining the army again, you know, that uncertainty of I, I didn't really want to be around other people. So now I'm in hospital, like, you know, laying in my bed, I've got a cannula in both arms. I'm losing blood still. The stoma produces your, your enzymes like an acid that comes out, which normally you wouldn't feel because it would go into your colon. Mm. Um, you wouldn't feel that at the other end. But now, because it's an open wound, the, the, that comes out and it's like acid, it's like battery acid dripping on your thing. That's what it feels like, basically, is the, the pain. Um, yeah, mate, and I couldn't eat properly at first. I was on, like, liquid food. You know, all I want to do is smash a steak and have a pint of Guinness and fucking stand up with the lads and have a chat. But you can't, so... Yeah, I was in hospital for a few weeks, and then I sort of got back on my feet. And then um, that was that was the first phase of hospital. And then the second phase. Um, so just before I left Queens, I um, I've uh, I, I, I missed a bit out there before before I went there. I I got help from um, from Martin. You know the gentleman I mentioned earlier. They um, he some phoned me Bryn and. Um, I said, fucking hell, mate, like the devil's come and got me here. I don't know what's going on. Like I hadn't spoken to anyone for ages and he called me and I answered it. And uh, he told his dad. So he, his dad called um, called on some people he knew, um, a friend of his, um, to, who's the CEO of uh, Wellington Hospital. And um, Keith Haig is his name. He um, he basically put, the, put a private ambulance to come and get me. And they whipped me out of there to take me to the private hospital in St. John's Wood. So that was very kind of him. Like, I'll never forget that. Um, yeah, it was just a bit easier because obviously Queens was was crazy. You know, it was, it was I was weak and I didn't know what was going on. So uh, yeah, they 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 got me up there to get some respite, and I, I got looked after there. And then come out of that hospital, and then uh, yeah, I had to get I had to get to grips with you know going to the toilet twelve to fifteen times a day, but not through your through your bum. It comes up through your stomach in your bag. Which is a bit graphic, but that's that's the that's the heads and the tails of it, mate. Really, awful. Yeah. That's the reality you was facing. Oh, mate, awful. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. Mm. And did they ever give you any sort of um, reasons to why they think it had occurred? So it's an interesting question. So during this process now of my recovery, I was fascinated with that. Like, why? Why me? Not not blaming me or blaming anyone else. So I wasn't certainly looking for sympathy because that's not in my um, my DNA to start thinking, oh, fucking hell, why me? Mm. It was a case of, I need to understand this. This is my new enemy. I need to understand it, gather it up and destroy it. Why me? Can this happen again? Will it happen to the stoma? Um, and the quick answer is they, they don't know. Lots of things can bring it on. Um, stress. Um, and I, I started thinking immediately, I always thought I was okay mentally throughout my military career, but maybe I was dumping it in my gut. And actually, before I left the military, if I backtrack a little bit, we, you have tests when you get out, like I said, in that resettlement period, they, they did have a camera. I'd done a colonoscopy, yeah. and they found a tiny little ulcer way, way, way high up in my gut, and it was nothing to worry about. So, you know, maybe I contracted it then, and it, it, it gradually got worse. But, you know, um, as far as trauma goes, I didn't think I was traumatised or anything like that. Um, yeah. yeah. Looking back on it now, though, do you think that 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 whole experience was was like a, a stress that made the ulcer grow worse? I think so. I think the reason I coped, and you know, like earlier when I said I was numb, it, it, I wasn't being clever or flash, or you know, I thought I was better than everyone else. I was certainly scared like everyone else, but um, I think I was just dumping it, mate. I was just going boom, that will go in the gut, bang, that will go in the gut. 
And then obviously it's just caught up in me. Um, yeah, and, and grabbed hold of me. It didn't just catch up with me. You know, it took me over. Big styly, like out of the game. Um, and there's another part to the operation as well. So you have the initial one and then I had to go back in and they go through the same scar again and then they pull the stoma back inside you and then I had a thing called a J-pouch, which is a technique from the Mayo Clinic in, um, in California. They stitch it. It's like the size of a water balloon. You know, like under the sink, you get the, the cistern, that's the, that sort of J shape. Yeah. And then they stitch that to your to your bum hole, really, without being too uh, too graphic. Yeah. And then, so that fills up very, very quickly. So I still go to the toilet anywhere between 10 to 15 times a day now, but it's, it's, it's a lot better now, you know, like five years in or six years in or whatever I am. I haven't had any remissions or anything like that. Um, I'm very, very lucky. But um, yeah, I still go to the toilet. I still get pain. And it's sleep, Jay, is the biggest thing, you know. Mm. So to answer your question in regards of do I think what caused it, it's I have suffered with sleep for a very, very long time. And I, it's not traumatic where I see things or flashbacks or anything like that. But I do feel hopelessly um, inadequate sometimes. Like I didn't do enough whilst I was in or I didn't do this while I was in. Or mm. if I'd have done that, would that have changed anything? Or did I let anyone down? Mm. Um you know, that's a big burden to carry. And I do that because some people sometimes think, uh, oh, it's all right for Hugh, he does this or he does that. If only they fucking knew. I'm probably the happiest depressed person walking about. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is hard. It's mm. hard, hard, hard to deal with that. Um, but yeah, I just kept doing really. And have you spoken to people about this? Um, yeah. I've... Claire probably gets the brunt of it, I reckon. Um, and then recently, like, I've spoken to a lady in the, uh, in uh, in Wally called Mick. She's a she was a lovely lady. I had a few sessions with her. Um, yeah, opened up floodgates really. Just chat, chat, chat. She put it down to probably my childhood. Um, so like I said, my parents split up when I was ten, and at the time it didn't really affect me because I had the pick of the other dads, and that's not to discredit my dad in any sort of way. You know, mm. I saw him, we spoke with that, but uh, we're not mega close. We are we are now. We talk, but um, you know, men have got to do what man's got to do, right? But um, yeah, I, I think I didn't deal with that as a kid then. I probably dumped it. She's probably that little tiny ulcer that they found when I was in the army, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I was prone to ulcers. People are. It's actually very, very common. Colitis, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease yeah. is, is rife. You know, back in the day, they called it bloody flux. You know, like when you see the old gin pictures, we're all sitting in the street, fucking hopelessly dying, mm. holding their stomachs, predominantly because they had um, bloody flux, which was, yeah, colitis. The ulcers were serious because life was so hard then, I guess. They were, you know, it's, it's, you have to be very strict then with what you eat. Now things can flare me up. Yeah, I learned a lot. So, um, you know, when I was growing up that, down that street that like I told you, I was very lucky. It was a multicultural street. I had Mauritians on one side, a Malaysian lady. There was all different colours down my street, all different foods, nationalities. So I've got a thing for spicy food, mate. I love it, like noodles and that, you know. Um, I have to be careful if I eat that now. Um, but you might see, you know, I like my meat. I eat yeah. my meat, like the carnivore diet and things like that. Um, that's very helpful. Dairy can flare up. So, yeah, I do have to watch. I think anything's okay as long as it's um, minimal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I see you share um, similar love to me, to Thomas Joseph Butchery. That's it. Yeah. He's a good boy, isn't he? That shop, yeah. his new shop, she's been done up as well. There's um, yeah, got some it? serious meat in there, mate. Yeah, he knows what he's doing, that boy. I've just done a big order off of him. It arrived Saturday, so I can't wait. I'll be like an excited <laughs> kid mate like christmas when that box arrives yeah man that's it um so look not to gloss over that because that's obviously a very um it, you've, you've gone through the mill here 
uh, you know, you've gone for a serious medical condition that's potential, well, not potentially, that's changed the way you operate. Yeah, life changing massively. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but here you are flying the great British flag on French soil in your budgie smugglers. Yeah, man. Like, I still, I still, like, does, has that sunk into you? What? what no. And to tie that in with what I was just talking about, so when I was sitting in St. Mark's Hospital where I had the, the other bit of the operation, my mum come in and uh, the lady that was running the wing, because I moaned and got a private room there, she was like, oh, yeah, trust you, like we're having a bit of banter. I said, I'm going to swim the channel and I'm going to donate money or raise money for this hospital. Mm. And she was like, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, like a bit of tongue-in-cheek sort of got out of there. Well, little did she know <laughs> that, um, yeah, I think I focused on the channel, mate, long before that I was in pain and hurting, that that was going to lift me out of it. So it become a bit of a, I'm going to do this no matter what. Do you know what I mean? In my head, I'd swim it a few times anyway, naively, not knowing what was sort of involved and how to get ready for it. You know, I'd soon learn that about that. But uh, yeah, so when I left the hospital, you know, got my bag, sort of got, got back together, sort of with my life as much as I could. And then um, fast forward a good few years. Uh, but in, in the meantime, I'd had Nancy, my first child, um, and Jimmy, me and Claire are doing great. I work for the family business, you know, doing that. So that's that's awesome, and I'm very grateful for that. It's, but, it's um, a changing perspective, isn't it, when your kids come along? Oh, mate, it's just it's incredible, isn't it? It's, you know, they said it's um, what's that saying? The, the two days, you, the first day you find out, you know, that I can't remember the saying. The um, yeah, there's two two days in your life. That's it, Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah, there's two days in your life that you the day you're born, and, and then the day you find out why. Yeah. yeah, and that's when Nancy come along, man. You know, that was powerful. She, uh, yeah, daddy's love to her daughter's a strange tool, isn't it? It's just a massive, um, yeah, I still can't grasp that magic. That I just, I look at her sometimes, it's, it's scary, isn't it? How much you love them. But, um, yeah, and then Jimmy. And then in the back of my brain, I just had my uncle Jeremiah just saying every Christmas when I was a kid, you're going to do the channel? You're going to do the channel? I'll do it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he swam it when I was 10. Right. I just remember all uh, the family getting together and congratulating him, you know, and he, he's a big hero of mine. Like, I'd, I'd love him to bits. He's um, he's a good man. He's like the Wim, Wim Hof of Woodford. <laughs> you know, he's, he's only ever had cold showers. He's six foot four. He's big. He's yeah. like, do you know what I mean? You might have seen him on my video when he's on the boat. He's the, the guy shouting at me, giving me advice, um, encouraging me. Yeah, so fast forward to when... Um, he's I a coach, just, right? Pardon? Is your uncle a coach? Um, a coach, yeah, he's, he's coached a few people, of course. He's not an official coach, but where he was in the swimming community from the from the off, if you like, when there's a lady called Alison Streeter, who's the queen of the channel. But that's in a bit of thing at the moment. There's some other people that might take that spot. But basically, she swam it multiple times, like 34 times or something like that. Wow. So when Jerry first started doing it, he met her by chance at Dover at the beach right. and sort of got chatting. She said, oh, you can come swimming if you want. And then, you know, a year later, he's doing the channel. Mm. So... Um, yeah, that's where he got the inspiration from. And then, um, he, yeah, he's coached a few people across. He's done a few relays as well. He's got a few. He, yeah, he's great, man. It, like the swimming things, it's, it's a powerful thing, the old swimming. Like you don't realise like, what goes into it. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a really tight-knit group of people. I, I was thinking about this earlier. Like I, I would um, I would much rather run 10 miles than swim one. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's not to say that, uh, you know, I'd never, I'd never swim. I just know, for me, swimming, even over Trifarm in Boreham, yep. for, for some reason I've got one speed, and that's my problem. 
yep. and it's crawl and it's fast as fuck. And I guess yep. myself out in that first boy, and then I'm like, what do know, I do now? Doing the gentleman breaststroke because I am gassed. Yeah, uh, like, we'll I, fix that, mate. We'll fix that. No problem. So, so how does someone train to swim the English Channel? So. The initial briefing, when I said that, in, in this, this is my experience, and obviously I, I trusted everything my uncle told me. So his first bit was um, get wet, basically just get wet. So I found out a pool near me at work, so I could drive there. It opened at six, and I literally just got in. You know, he was like, try some goggles, try the swimming out on, do this, just get wet. So he thought, like, after two weeks, I might just say, I don't want to do it anymore. I think is what he was thinking. But it's sort of become a bit of a ritual for me, mate. Like, I could get there in the morning. Could just get straight out of bed. Normally, I have a shower and a bit of a palaver, you know, before you go to work. Now, I could just get straight up, get in. My, it was a bit of a mission mm. to drive to the pool, do that. And then, very quickly, he said, uh, Right, now we need to introduce you to the cold. So, um, no more hot showers, no hot baths, nothing like that. Um, in the garden, he's, over, he's only ever used a hose in the garden for like the last 30 years since his daughters, my cousins, have been born. Mm. And uh, they all think he's mad. But um, so Claire got me a dog washing lead, the, the clicker hose thing that goes on. I hung that in the garden on the tree and i got a little drain lid that I stand on for extra discomfort. <laughs> and um, yeah, started doing that, mate, at like five o'clock in the morning before I go to work. I get up, go outside, have a cold shower. First, it was like 10 seconds. Get in, get out, get in, get out. But very quickly, I found one, it helped with the chlorine. I think if you have a hot shower after being in the pool so much, you sort of get this scaly sort of horrible chemical smell. Right. I felt like a bottle of bleach walking around. Mm. But with a cold shower, it sort of neutralised that. And then I thought, oh, I feel pretty good. So, yeah, um, started doing that, literally. Like, the, the, the brief was get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and then he done the cold showers. And then we went to the Lido in Parliament Hill. Are you yep. familiar with that in Hampstead Heath? Yeah. Uh, mate, be beautiful old listed building. But the, the swimming pool is incredible. You go there and he, I was like, right, this is the fucking real deal. So we, we jumped in. And um, I think the... The temperature was 16 degrees water, 16 degrees air, which is like perfect channel swimming weather, yeah? Mm. But to me, obviously not conditioned at all. I jumped in and I was like, doing the old like coming out and then he's just down at the bottom, like in a zen position, just going, <laughs> blowing out bubbles, you know what I mean? I was like, look at this geezer. I've come up, like don't know where I am. There's all other swimmers thinking, who is this? I'm like beluga white, do you know what I mean? I look like I'm well out of my comfort zone. And the next thing, Jerry just emerges, like, you know, when, you know, the goggles are there, he just comes up, follow me. I'm like, okay. So like, <laughs> couldn't even get to the other end, sort of thing, so cold. Got out. And he was like, right, that's your first introduction to cold water. Your next, um, your next session here is next Sunday. I'm like, go away and get wet again. So that, that went on for a few weeks. Yeah. But, but then I just synced in, Jay. I just started loving it, mate. It was just, um, it was awesome. The, the cold thing and the reset. Like, I went places in my mind. But interestingly, the, Probably the second or third time, I think, I went there on my own. And Jerry said, I'm not going to come this time. You do it and let me know how you get on. So I fucking walked out to the... Um, I'm not allowed to wear flip-flops, by the way. He said, I'm not allowed to wear flip-flops. And you don't hot shower. So lots of people go there, jump in, and then have a lovely hot shower and a bit of cake. I have to walk past all them people. And he knows them all. So there was no way I was going to cheat anyway. Yeah. Yeah, jumped in. And uh, like I said about that pressure on my head and that chin strap, I jumped in. I sort of said something in my head. Probably God save the Queen or something. You know me what I say if I'm about to do something I don't want to do. Mm. I jumped in and it was like the chin strap come off. And I went down, done my blowing out the water. <sighs> calm, come up. And it was like, boom, another bit come off my ear. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is this is cool. Something's happening here. Mm. I know that sounds a bit corny, but it literally felt like the cold was just shaking the shit out of me. Mm. Excuse the pun there. 
And then, um, yeah, I've done a few lengths. It was early, so you have to do wits before you can do the lengths at a certain time. So anyway, done that, got out, dried off again, no shower. Driving back home, the sun come up, mate. It was Sorry, the sun was already up, but it was just, you know, breaking through the clouds. Yeah. Like a house tune come on. And I just thought, I am fucking alive. I am, I've done it. I'm here. I'm alive. Fuck the operation. Fuck tours. I know I'm swearing a lot, but fuck this, fuck that. I just started saying it over and over again, mate. I think I had tears coming out of my eyes and I'm shaking, like I'm cold. And I just thought, this is incredible. I need more of this. Yeah. I need more of this. This is the bollocks. So I got in, like Claire's got like sausage rolls cooking, the kids are running around, like it's amazing, like it's a Sunday, it's about 11 o'clock now. I just thought, I'm alive. I'm pumped for work. First time I got excited about going to work, yeah. things just started happening, you know. Then swimming changed gear. So Jerry said, look, you need to join a Masters. You need to start putting some distance. Because obviously I'm not a swimmer. I wasn't a swimmer. Yeah. So uh, I got in contact with someone I knew and they'd, they'd swum at Bazardon and Phoenix Masters, which is at the, um, I never remember, it's not the... That's it, mate. Yeah, the Sporting Village. And um, I met a lady there called Sue, Sue Humphreys, who's the head, one of the coaches there for the Masters, the senior lot. Didn't tell her I was going to swim the channel. I just rocked up, said, I want to swim. Can you coach me? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, jump in. And it was just like that. Yeah, jump in that lane. So I got in a slow lane, which was fast because <laughs> there was no slow lane at Masters. Anyway, started working on my technique. And then, um, yeah, carried on doing that. That was three nights a week. So I didn't miss a session from when I started to when I finished swimming the channel. I was there every Monday, Wednesday and Friday mm. and still doing the swimming in the mornings, uh, resting at the weekends. But then I went to the lighter every Sunday and then she started working with me in my technique Still didn't mention I was doing the channel. And then Jerry said, right, um, I think it's the 1st of May that you um, the swimming season starts down at Dover. Yeah. So that's where you do your training, your Dover training. So you're in the sea. And um, there's a lady there called Emma, and she runs a thing called uh, Emma to France. She, she trains channel swimmers, basically. And not just channel swimmers. Um, there's loads. Then you start learning about all other swims. You know, there's the big one in America, the, um, you know, the Seven Bridges or something they call it. You swim in Manhattan. Uh, arc to arch so you can um, there was a, a guy called Chris Leap training for the Enduro Man which is you run from Marble Arch in London to Dover swim to France get out there and cycle to Paris and he'd done it he'd done it he broke the record for the non-wetsuit as well so skins he broke it he, you look him up Chris Leap he's a good guy he, he, he was actually the one that told me I should do it a year early because he said why are you going to wait a year why are you going to come back down here and do all this cold crazy madness like have a go this year so he, he was one of the first guys that put it in my head that i could actually do it mm. so i jumped a bit there sorry mate um yeah so you get down to dover and uh that was quite an experience because it's like the mecca of obviously the the swim captain webb's behind you there's a bust of him <laughs> so i mean so you've got the big man looking over you and then um yeah get in get wet so i think the first swim you have the safety brief the first swim's like swim out to the yellow boy and back there's like the yellow ducks they call them like the little bits so you swim out touch the green boy sorry um not yellow green swim to that come back got out for 45 minutes then got back in that's called a split swim and then um yeah so waited got back in done it again right see you tomorrow so i swam both saturdays and sundays some people could some people can't you know they live in different places or it's hard for them but i had made jerry told me you swim saturday you swim sunday and you do not get out if they say you do this amount of time, you do that time. I don't care if you're cramping, crying, getting attacked, you stay in. So I kept that mantra and I um, I, I, I just got involved, mate. I got stuck right in. I would drive down there. So I work all week, finish on a Friday, obviously at work, get up, 
five o'clock Saturday morning, drive down there, have a little bit of time to myself, and then they start swimming at eight o'clock, I think. Yeah, eight o'clock, the first swim is, so you get in and you just swim from the beach to the harbour wall and back, which is about a mile. Mm. Then you start building up, and very quickly I was doing uh, three hours on the Saturday, get out, drive home, eat, sleep, drive back down there to Sunday, do four hours or whatever Emma gave you. So mm. you're just in. And then... Um, you practice your thing like feeding as well because obviously you'd get fed off a boat but what you do is you after an hour after an hour yeah after two hours in the morning you come up to the beach a bit like a seal and they'll have some people waiting there like some helpers with like a cup of food that cmp stuff that i told you about yeah. and maybe a handful of jelly beans and some fucking cake or whatever you smash that in and then they send you straight back out like it's not, there's no niceties it's not it's not about that it's like get your grub and go yeah. then you're back out swimming so you're constantly swimming around and that yeah repeat that mate for a, for a good couple of months and then, um, yeah, so that was... So what was the longest you swam before you actually embarked so, on the swim? Yeah, so prior to that, you might have seen in my video the, the guy with the long hair who's cuddling me at the end. That's a guy called Stevie Steinhardt. He's, um, he's just recently become the first Frenchman to swim a two-way because you're not allowed to swim from Little Factory. You're not allowed to swim from France anymore. Right. So the only way you can swim from France is if you start in England. Right. You've got to do a two-way. So he wanted to do it as a Frenchman, swim from France to England. So he had to fucking do a two-way. So we had done a one-way before. And then, um, so the longest I'd swum before I'd done it, he, the, the, this Stevie was training to do his two-way. And it was a secret. No one knew at the time. And I got down there early and he's sitting there in the cafe. Bonjour. I was like, bonjour, Stevie. Nice one. Got chatting away. And he said, today I'm swimming for 10 hours. I said, Stevie, I am going to swim with you. And I won't forget, it was gay pride day. And, um, I had my gay pride budgie smugglers on, actually. I actually bought them specifically for that. So it was uh, that was a good little thing, like the little rainbow-coloured ones. So we had a bit of scoff in the calf and then uh, walked back down to the beach. And I got in and I'd done 10 hours, mate, non-stop. Pre yeah. Prior to that, then, what was the longest you'd done? Four hours before? Um, no, you have to do a six-hour qualifier. Right. So that was like halfway through my Dover bit to qualify you for the boat and all the bits and paper and all the shit that you have to go through to do it. So I'd smashed that within, I don't know, three weeks. I'd done six hours. And you have right. to do it under a certain temperature. And I'd done that. So that was, I was very lucky to do that because some people have to train. Obviously, everyone's a different ability. Some people, that's quite a big thing for them. Mm. And I literally, in my head, was staying in until the last person got out. And just so luck would have it, the people that I was training with were amazing. There's a guy called Nick Murch, who's a doctor. Um, he swam. He's done the North Channel as well, which is mental. Look that one up when you get a chance. That's from Port of Patrick to Bangor, so Northern Ireland to Scotland. And there's right. things that want to get you, man. That is cold, cold. There's only like a four-day window you can do it. So he'd just done that. So I've got him on the beach to talk to. Do you know what I mean? I, I just had all these swimming gods around me. Emma's amazing. I've got this Chris Lee who's training to do that enduro, man. Too many people to mention. Everyone there was like a legend. And then you've got me. who's never swum before. I'm doing it because I've got a with my uncle. Yeah. So... Talk to me about the day. You've just done this mammoth 10-hour swim. Yeah. And you said you swam it a year earlier. You, you got an opportunity to swim. Did you get a cancellation or? Pardon? Did you get a cancellation? Yeah, so what happened was the um, I'd had a chat with my uncle and he'd obviously been talking to all the people that he knew down there like without me knowing and they were saying, like, how's he getting on? And they were saying, like, yeah, he's doing well. Like, Yeah, he's having it. So in my brain, I was thinking I'm going to have a crack because – I was listening to that Christmas as well, you know, I didn't want to go back down there, have all Christmas, taking it easy for another Christmas again and start that training and building up and ramping up. I felt ready to go. I felt like primed, like, let's have it. So 
uh, I was at work one day and then my uncle was there and I said, look, we had a chat and we weren't falling out. It just got to a point where it was like coach, but obviously he's my uncle as well. So he wanted me to do well, but he also didn't want me to fail. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, Huey, if you want to do it, I'll back you up. And before he could finish saying that, I said, yeah, let's do it. So I let some people know down there that I wanted to do it. And then Claire phoned the boat people that I was already booked in for the year before. His wife's called Pearl. And she said, Pearl, Hugh wants to do it this year. And she said, all right, I'll pencil him in. Stand by. Mm. And that was it, mate. Like, fucking here we go. So you do a thing. I didn't even have time to taper down. Do you know, are you familiar with that term? Like, yeah. 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 So that was new to me. Um, I was just swimming. I just swim, 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 swim. And then I got a call. It was late at night. The old phone goes. And they said, yeah, um, get yourself down here on yeah, the 26th ready to swim out in the morning. So I was like, yeah, lovely jubbly. How much notice did you get, roughly? Uh, three days. <laughs> yeah, three days. Three days. What was going through your head the night before? Do you know what, mate? I was just thinking, because oh, Shawnee had to drive to me, because all the crew were going to come with me. So Shawnee, Rob, Bryn, yeah. uh, Michael, we was all well drilled. We all knew it. But I was thinking the logistics of that. I was thinking, were they okay? I was okay with the swim. I was thinking, are they going to get in that car? And what's going to happen? And I was going through it in my head like I'll drive here I'll do that I'm going to park there you know I wasn't even thinking about the swim which is probably a good technique really just to keep it off my mind yeah yeah I remember speaking to Sean the day after your swim and um big up Sean you know, by the way yeah he he I can visibly or physically hear him getting emotional and he was said he said to me Jay he went that was by far the best thing I've ever seen Said it was so good, yeah. so good. He said it was su- such an unbelievable effort, um, and I'm sure he said something like, "I don't think he realizes what, as what he's done yet." He said it was just, he was just blown away by it, and he, he was almost in a state of shock. And he's yeah. just in the boat watching you. Um, so he was, yeah, he was full of, he, he was bursting with pride from. Beers. Oh, mate, it was incredible. It was incredible. Like, yeah, it's, to be fair, like, like all my experiences through my life that we've discussed and things like that, it still hasn't really sunk in, if I'm honest. It's um, you know, like I didn't plan for it to be that long either. That was the big thing. So when you when you swim it, you have to sort of get across in a certain amount of time, and then like the tides can change, obviously whenever they want to change. But the the, the shipping lane in the middle, pardon. What is the time cap? The the time cap. Yeah, like what's the max amount of time you could be swimming? Oh well, you some people are in there for. I think the longest someone's done it was like twenty two hours or something like that, and it, and it comes down to safety. Then do you know what I mean? If they need to pull you off or if you're very unlucky, if the currents pick you up enough and push you around so you're going to land in Calais, mm. the port authorities will call it off because the small boat's getting in the way of the ferries. Yeah. So if you're unlucky enough to get that, some people. But um, yeah, my one, the brief was me and my uncle had a chat and I was like, look, Jerry, I either, sounds graphic, but I'm going to fucking die in there. You don't touch me or don't get me out, which was pretty hard for him to hear. I said, I am getting across. I don't care how long. Mm. And he was like, yeah, no problem. So the coach bit was good, but obviously the uncle head and heart was like, I'm in there, you know. So he's in there with me anyway. I felt him. I felt him the whole way. But um, yeah, I sort of was cracking on, it felt like. And then it started getting dark and I was like, this wasn't in the brief. I should be, you know, there's actually a, a, a place they aim for in Wissant. There's like a restaurant and some of the boys that land and ladies that land there, the, the restaurant come down, clap them. They have a bit of piano going, you get a glass of champagne. I was like, that, that's what I had in my head. I was like, what? I hope that restaurant stays open late. I'll never... I want some fucking scampion, you know, I want some food. I want a glass of champagne to get my head down. But um, that was not to be. Yeah, so the tide picked me up and pushed me like four hours the wrong way. So I had to swim against the tide going 
you know, along the coast. The whole time the coast was on my left, I didn't know that, but they were looking at where I needed to land. It pushed me that way and then about turned me and I had to swim against the tide going back up. And then finally, after all that time, they said, um, no, I heard another voice because I could see them on the boat, barely, because I still had my glasses on uh, with the, the sun tint on them. I could barely see them, but I could hear them. I felt safe the whole time. But yeah. the... Um, I heard a voice closer to me and it was Harry. One of the crew had got out in the rowing boat and said, follow me. So he's like 30 yards in front of me. I was like, follow me. I was like, what the fuck? I sort of popped out and my uncle was just looking at me like that way. And um, he said, yeah, you've done it. France is there. Go. Don't stop swimming. He actually called me for other words, but he was like, keep <laughs> swimming now. Don't you not stop. So I just started and I clenched my fists and I was just punching the water. Nancy, Jimmy, Nancy, Jimmy, Nancy, Jimmy. And then... Um, just all of a sudden I felt something hit my belly which was obviously hadn't happened the entire time and it was like whoa what is that and then I went up again come down then it was warm then it was cold then it was great and then it was the beach so I sort of beached myself and then um, I grabbed hold of the sand in both hands and stood up squeezing it and I could hear Huey Huey keep coming keep coming Huey Huey and I was like Stevie so I pulled my ear um, earbuds out and lifted up my goggles yeah, Stevie, pitch black, couldn't see. Stevie, yes, it's Stevie, come, come, come. And his wife, Frigid, was there and she had the flag and then they turned the torch on, mate, and that was it. Blah. Yeah, I've done it. But you have to clear the water line. You can't be helped or touched until you break the water. Yeah. So he's like, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, coming. And I just, bang, arms went up, mate. I've done it. I've done it, yeah. Can you sum up that moment in, in like, emotions and words? Or is it yeah. too... I can. I've got an expression that I've kept to myself and it's, Imagine a jacket of your whole, all the experiences, all the doubters, everything you've ever put into your head. You know, I went back to being a fucking boy and people doubting you and this, that and the other. And my mum, my dad, everything that had affected me, where I got to, what I thought about in training, the Lido flashed in front of me, my uncle, very important, you know, Martin, the help they gave me, people I'd said thank you to, not said thank you to. And I'd done the jacket up and it just went quiet. That was it. I could just hear the waves lapping. Done. Do you think? Do you think that swim was almost like a therapy session for you? Massive. The yeah. entire process from start to finish was a process for me to clear my shit. Mm. And I left it in that jacket and fucking dumped it in the uh, in the channel. Mm. Talk, talk to me about because there must have been periods throughout that swim where you you must have been doubting yourself or must have been thinking like, there must have been some real hard moments. Like, was that right? or am I... Yeah, seriously, mate. Yeah, there were some moments where you think um, you sort of get a bit disillusioned. That's why you've got to be careful who you pick in your crew because I, I almost was taking it out on my uncle, my uncle Jerry. I was thinking, why, why have I not fucking landed in France yet? I have been swimming all day going at the pace we've talked about. I've been doing the things, you know, I might have taken a bit longer on some of the feeds because you try and do the feeds as quick as you can. You don't want to, you know, you've seen in my video, a couple of them, I talk shit about getting a takeaway and stuff like that. But I, I was always me throughout the swim. But at the same time, I was looking at Claire, my fiance, and she's kind of looking at me. She can't tell me the time, by the way. They've been told not to tell me where I am or how long I've got because obviously there's nothing more disheartening, is there? You get told an hour and you're in there for five more. Yeah. I was just thinking, yeah, this is hard. <laughs> This is fucking. This this is why they call it the um, the Everest of the swim because, you know, there were some points. All you really want to do is reach on the boat and go. Do you know what? I've had it, but I'd never got that feeling. But you kind of 
felt it. I know that sounds a bit like I'm contradicting myself. It would have been lovely to just get on the boat, slide on there. But then I would have thought everything I've done prior to this will be for nothing. Yeah. Everything, every thought I told myself, every action, every motion, every time I've got in the cold and shivered and fucking been, you know, why am I doing this? I knew why I was doing it for that feeling. And that kept me going. Mm. Yeah. You had some, um, you had some experiences with some wildlife while you were swimming. Oh, mate, the um, obviously, I, I appreciate sharks. I like sharks, but I'm also intelligent enough to understand that you don't normally get them in the channel. It's yeah. not unheard of. You can get them there. So I've got a healthy respect for sharks. But the crew, it was probably like, it was just about to get dark. They're all there. Like, they've had the tops off, like, Shawnee, they're all there. And I told them not to point. Don't point, because obviously I'm going to be tired. And if you point at something, it's going to throw me off my swim. And I look at it, because obviously you've got oil tankers going past you, like 250-foot things. They're bloody massive. You can hear the vibrations. Your bones shake, yeah? So they're looking at them, and I think, oh, that's lovely. So I'm doing my bilateral breathing, left, right, looking back at the boat. Next thing, they're all at the front of the boat, pointing. I was like, what the fuck are they pointing at? I told them, don't point. So I carried on breathing. Now I've sort of put a bit more squirt on my swim, got up the front of the boat. They're all pointing, pointing, pointing. Well, mate, I looked up, and about 20 yards in front of me, it can only be described as, like, you know Mr. Blobby? Yeah. That shaped head, and this thing is just there, and it... As soon as I looked at it, it went under. So then they will come walking back down the boat and they're looking behind me because they don't know I've clocked it. Mm. And as I've looked back towards them and the boat, I felt the sea surge underneath me. And this seal with its massive head that looked like a, a boiler <laughs> looking at me with its eyes like, hello. <laughs> it come underneath me, mate, like it wanted to give me a kiss. And I just remember thinking, fucking hell, this is it. So as quick as it come to me, it sort of, just faded back down the way and then I've gone obviously put my face out to breathe look back in and now it's in between us and the boat and everyone's just looking at it and I'm I'm in the water with it mate it was massive it was as long as me no exaggeration you know it might as well have been a fucking theanosaur or theanosaur dinosaur whatever they're called the swimming yeah. thing it was Loch Ness Monster I don't know what it was but it was close yeah. and then yeah and then it popped out behind me and just had this yeah mate not cool not what you want to see how long was he with you for was it seconds or just... yeah mate yeah 30 seconds, probably the whole experience, 30, 40 seconds. And yeah. then obviously I just had to switch off then and carry on thinking. Yeah. With the adrenaline kicking in when he, when he was near oh, you? For sure, mate. Yeah, that definitely wasted a bit of energy, but also put a bit <laughs> of a squirt on my swim. That is when I decided, listen, you get me out of this water quick. Mm. Yeah. And the jellyfish as well, you know, they, they were stinging pretty much constantly. But for some reason, I don't know why, some people have an, an awful experience. I, I was okay with the jellyfish. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong I didn't want them in there they're not a nice thing to get and they always seem to get you like I, I kept getting it across the bridge of my nose in between my goggles so all you want to do is take that off you know mm. yeah. how many times do you reckon you got stung roughly I got stung almost immediately when I got in at Dover uh, within, like, within the first hour and that was the one across my nose which drove me mad and then I felt a couple on my shoulder to be honest with you mate you, you, you get brushed by things all the time like mm. in the separation zone because when you look across the France the boats go from right to left and then the other way from France, if you know what I mean, as in like their shipping lanes. So in the middle, you get loads of like, like, um, like gloopy waste, if you know what I mean, like seaweed, like discarded cargo nets and things like that. It's like the rubbish bit. Um, and I swam through some like kelp, and that was that was biting me in different bits. You know, that felt like it was scratching me. So that was quite disorientating. You just want to get through that. That probably lasted for about I don't know a hundred meters of just this horrible. I remember thinking this is not nice. You know, it's slowing me right down. But it didn't bother me. I just nothing could have bothered me. You know. Mm. because you were so fixated on your yeah. goal nothing was going to stop Nothing's you getting me. I'm getting out in France mate mm. it's, it's such an epic achievement mate so yeah, it's incredible it still hasn't sunk in you know really it's um 
you know, I tell the story and say, and people say, and it's funny, like you do all your military stuff, which obviously people know about. I suppose people join the army all the time. I don't know. And I'm not anything special. You know, I'm, I'm just me. But um, the channel is, you know, people find it really fascinating. Mm. How did you feel after? Was you beaten up? Was you sore? Could you tell you were shifting? So we drove back to Brentwood, got back, all the lads went, and then I remember just laying down. I wanted a shower, that was for sure. I wanted that hot sensation. I treated myself to a lovely shower. Mm. And I think I had a nice breakfast, mate. And I, I think I went back to work the next day. Um, I didn't feel too bad, if I'm honest. It was mm. like the day after the day after, if you know what I mean. A bit of that rave feeling. You know, you've been raving all weekend. You think of it like discombobulated, like, well, fucking, have I just done that? Or do I need to eat? There's all that going on, like, do I need a cup of tea? Or, or you're holding a cup of tea, doing that sort of feeling. <laughs> Bit out of your nut. Yeah. yeah. Madness. Um, all our guests, uh, Hugh, that come on the show, we ask them some sort of uh, chasing discomfort questions. And I just want to roll through these quickly, mate, if you're okay for time. Yeah, boy. What is the number one rule or the non-negotiable rule that you live your life by? Don't not listen to yourself, if that helps, if that's right, if, if I understood the question correctly. Trust your gut, yeah? Trust, listen to... uh, not in my case. Well, yeah. No, no, I, don't mean, I don't mean that to, to slight you. I mean, that is what I miss. I, I miss my gut. So mm. if I'd have fucking listened to it earlier on, I probably wouldn't have been through that shit. So that, that's not, um, yeah, your gut feeling is a big thing. Trust yourself. They reckon that's where the second brain is, don't they? Well, there is studies going into that, and I'm, it's a good question, mate. Uh, that's probably a whole other podcast. It'd be fascinating to get someone on. I'd be keen to, I'd be keen to be involved in that one. They say, well, like I said earlier, I think I dumped it there. I think, and then I think some other people may dump it in their brain. If that's a, a, you know, it's a bit of a crude way of saying it, but you're stressed and stuff. But yeah, I certainly dumped mine in my gut. Well, they know there's neurons that run from your brain to your gut. Yeah. Uh, they did at first think that the second brain could be in the heart because the electric stimulus from the heart. Yeah. Just think that that's that's just the way the heart functions, and yeah, if, if it is going to be anywhere, it's going to be in the gut. Yeah. Um, what's your favourite quote? Mm. That's a loaded question, man. I have got a lot. Um, I mean, my favourite quote. Nothing great is easy. Is your tagline? Nothing right? great is easy. Is probably my new one. Yeah, but the. Um... Oh, it's a Stephen Hawking's one, and you put me on the spot not being able to remember it. It's, um, it's about change. Um, I can't remember it, Pat. How embarrassing is that? That's all yeah. good. We'll, we'll look it up after the show. Yeah. We'll, we'll tag the people in it. Uh, what's your dream car? Dream car. Bentley. Nice. Two, gin two dinner guests you can invite, dead or alive, who would they be? Andy McNabb. Uh, no, Stephen Fry. And uh, Ray Mears. Ray Mears, yeah? Ray Mears. Nice. Childhood hero. What, what would be your ring walk song? Oh, mate, I've got a few. Probably um, Kasabian, Fast Fuse. Right. Okay. Good question, bro. I like these. <laughs> Book you've read more than once and why? Book I've read more than once and why? Mm. I haven't read many books, mate, which is a bit, it's a bit of a thing I'm getting into at the moment, actually, reading books. Um, yes. Nothing jumps out. One that's sort of stuck out to most of you that you've read recently? Um, Black Box Thinking. I'm getting into that. Hmm. I've not read that. Is that that's a worth a go, is it? Yeah, yeah, give it a go, yeah. Definitely. Cool. 
what do you do when you start feeling down? Ask myself why. Am I in control of it? Does it affect me? Is it me doing it to me or is it something or someone doing it to me? And then act accordingly. Because if it's someone or something, you confront it. If it's you, fucking speak up about it. Because otherwise it goes downhill quick. It's a great philosophy, mate. Um, number one life hack. What is your trick? Number one life hack trick. Get your shit ready before you go to bed. So when you wake up in the morning, no matter what happens at night, whether you get bumped in the night, you get robbed, someone comes in, you know where your shoes are, your keys are, and you've got a bit of money on you. Yeah, you can spring it into action. That's it. Um, I've, I've heard, because I've always done this, I've always prepped, like, even down to, like, I have my clothes up, and I have it in order, pants, socks, clothes, if I've got an ID bag, belt, shoes are at the door, bags at the door. If I'm having something to eat, like, the... the cup will be loaded with a tea bag that's it it's the only way to do it bro because like i I do believe that we only have a certain amount of decisions we can make in a day if you're standing there in the morning going oh what should i wear like you're just eating into those decision makings that you might later on definitely um favorite film oh mate you are asking some good questions again load that's a whole different podcast (laughs) favorite film full metal jacket or Zulu, or Platoon. Yeah, there's loads, man. Ronin. Um, what's your spirit animal? I think I know this one. You, you tell me. Lion. Yeah, boy. <laughs> ah. uh, what's your mantra when the going gets tough? There's um, I got written in one of my reports from a guy I trusted a lot. He was a, a he's a colonel now, but he's a good. It's I've got a genuine Sang Freud, which he wrote about me. Um, and that is the determination to just get it done, like trusted. You can count on me. So that's what I go back to. I've done it before. I can fucking do it again. And you better be good if you want to get me. It's a strong value, isn't it? Determination. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Favourite sweet treat? Haagen-Dazs, salted caramel. Oh. The, biggest, the biggest tub you can buy. That's my Achilles heel, mate. Yeah, I don't fuck about. When I was training for the channel, I'd come home, Claire would have like three or four, I'd eat them, gone, boom. I'd open the lid, I'd open all the lids. <laughs> yeah, night kids, love you, bye. I know daddy's not seeing you much lately, but I need some time alone with the heart and <laughs> <laughs> And I'd munch them, mate, they'd be gone. Yeah. I, I, keep, I always, I'm like a boomerang, I always go back to that. Like good night round yours. Thomas, Joseph, Butchery, me, and a bit of hugging and Me and you could yeah. get it on. Yeah. Yeah, man. There's some explosions on the fucking toilet after that. Yeah, yeah. I can help you with that as well. <laughs> um, if you could pick one dinner for the rest of your life, what would it be? Steak. Lovely. Favourite place in the UK? My mum's gaff. Nice. Favourite international destination? Mate, I've been about, but South Africa touched me. That was cool, South Africa. But also Afghanistan, beautiful. I'd like to go back there and then boys sort it out and it's all... Uh, all shits and giggles. Yeah. Um, best and worst exercise movement. Best and worst. Yeah, burpees annoy me. <laughs> burpees are not good. I don't think I was designed for burpees. And best, hmm. swimming. Swimming. Favourite sport? Rugby. Viewers <laughs> or the listeners won't know what we just done there, will they? <laughs> Um, and what advice would you give to a young Hugh? A young Hugh? 
stay true to what you know um, and just back yourself up. And if you hear the doubters and you hear the people that say you can and you can't, and I know it sounds like a cliche and blah, 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 they don't know what they want to do. And I knew that as a young age, them parents or adults that I would hear, all they had was knowledge and they were a bit taller. I was more capable than them. Stick to your guns. Do what you want to do. Don't hurt people. Try not to be disrespectful, but stay on your mission because other people are going to try and influence you and they unload what they think you need to do. You know what you need to do. Stick to it and fucking give it your best shot because it's only you that's got to deal with it. Belief is such a such a big thing, isn't it? I mean, I always, always go back to that quote by Henry Ford, you know, whether you think you can... Or you can't, you're right. You're right. And that, that's I just, it, man. That's such a... Yeah. You know, if I ever doubt in myself or, or, you know, questioning myself, I always go back to that. Yeah. Epic. Hugh, let's wrap it up, mate. It's been a, it's been an epic conversation. You've been a legend of a guest. Um, you're an inspiration. Thank you for your service. Take some time to reflect on that epic achievement that you've yeah, done. It, it is, um, you're in a very, very small percentage of people in the world, like you say, that have swum their Everest. So, um, Take Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very you much, Jay. Me. Keep the good work up, mate. Yeah, cheers, brother. Take care, mate. See you soon. God bless. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening. What a truly inspirational guy. Head over to our Instagram page, I am Chasing Discomfort, for further updates and news on the podcast, where you can also submit your uh, feedback to the podcast and also recommendations for future guests. Thanks again. Ta-da.